Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mark J.D. Philippus. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vanden. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 81. I'm your host Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Don. This is Jay. And I'm John Wilson. Two days until my birthday. Uh, this is Stella. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thanks. And we are bringing you the comic news and comic book reviews from November 6th through November 19th which is a total of 10 Batman books. Not a lot of news, but a whole lot of uh, reviews to go over. So we're going to jump right into comic news and try to breeze through that so we can get right into these 10 reviews. The very first thing we have is on November 7th, uh, the weekend prior to that, so that would have been November 5th and 6th, was uh, the Kamikaze, the first Kamikaze convention, which is a comic convention in Los Angeles, was held, and there was a number of uh, Batman Universe creators uh, present at the, at the convention, and there actually was a DC panel. And uh, attending the panel was uh, Blonde, Kyle Higgins, and Scott Lobdell. And there was a couple of little bits mentioned in regards to upcoming things within the Batman universe. So, let's go over those things. Dick Grayson will be taking on a job in Gotham City that might surprise some people. Scott Lobdell revealed that Red Robin will be making a guest spot in an upcoming story arc of Superboy, which will span over three issues. And Kyle Higgins mentioned that Damien will be teaming up with Dick Grayson sometime after issue 9. So, what's uh, interesting about that is clearly all of these events that are going to be happening are going to be happening probably you know, further out past February at this point. So, I don't foresee any of these actual things that they're talking about. And this just is proof that DC is really having these people work months and months in advance. I've heard a lot of complaints recently about how Marvel is so thoroughly integrating a lot of their titles as far as characters appearing all over the place besides their own solo or team books. I, I'm I'm curious to know how DC feels about that as a general principle, because we do seem to have a lot of intermingling being forecast between the titles. And while I kind of think that's pretty cool, as long as they make it clear on the covers who's going to have a significant role in which stories... Um, I'm just curious to know what their what their plan is towards that. Well, I'm pretty glad that DC is more characteristic to themselves because what I understand of Marvel is you have to read every single book to understand the one you actually want to read. I have no comment on that because I don't read Marvel. You fool! Definitely not. All right, moving on to the next bit of news we have. <laughs> November 10th, uh, Chip Kidd talked with Newsarama about his upcoming Batman Death by Design this wasn't specifically an interview, it was more of a conversation. So, speaking specifically on his portrayal of Batman and Bruce Wayne, he said, Both Batman and Bruce Wayne play equal parts in Batman Death by Design. I've always liked the idea that there were certain things Batman can do that Bruce Wayne cannot, and the opposite being true as well. 
Bruce can do things out in the world Batman could never never could. Once I firmly reestablished those two facets in my head, I was able to think about how he might address a certain situation or character from those angles. And on his addition to Batman's rogues gallery, he said, The villain I invented is named Exacto, with the concept of him being an architectural critic as a Batman villain. I wanted to make him a bit sympathetic while being villainous, emerging as an anti-hero of sorts. So my comments on that are... Exacto, there's there's Exacto is not a very original name, um, and the fact that it's going to be an architectural critic, I am interested in that because I love architecture. I love seeing the architecture that appears in Gotham City, especially by really great artists. So uh, that's all I've got. Um, I'm kind of questioning why his he's so fascinated by uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman as separate characters because they are the same guy. I mean, I just kind of find that surprising. It's, it's like, I know people like the idea that Bruce Wayne and Batman are like separate entities, but I mean, it's not as it's not as though Bruce Wayne is going to say Batman should have thought of this while I do this or vice versa. I kind of find that I just kind of find that out mindset odd. I don't really find it odd. I just think that um, it's not a chance to explore, like. If Superman is going to go try to expose Inner Gang, he can do a whole lot of that as Clark Kent. Versus um, if he wants to go beat up, you know, Darkseid, he can do that as Superman. There are things that there are things that one side of the persona can do that the other one can't, just because of the roles they play in society. And I like architecture because I live inside it. Um, I find it rather amusing because I have an architecture degree. Uh, exacto was it actually spelled X? A-C-T-O? Or did he... E-X-A-C-T-O. Really? Okay, because the brand, the Exacto Blade brand, which you have to use all the time when you're making models, is the, the starting with the X. So that, that that's kind of interesting. I think it's clever, but yeah, probably not like the most inventive thing, but he could be like the laser cutter or something. But no, that's kind of funny, though. It just makes me flashback to cutter. my days of, uh, of architecture school, but that's all I have to say. All right, so then the next bit of news we have comes on November 14th. Derek Friedolfs talked with Comic Book Resources about his new project, Arkham Unhinged, which is kind of the continuous digital exclusive um, comic that's coming out weekly that ties in with Batman Arkham City. So for this interview, I'll read for Comic Book Resources, and Don will read for Derek Friedolfs. Derek, tell us about Arkham Unhinged. What's the general plot, and how does it connect with the Arkham City video game? For those unfamiliar with the game, the idea is that the new mayor, Mayor Sharp, in association with Hugo Strange, has sectioned off an old part of Gotham with walls in order to house in criminals from Arkham Asylum and Blackgate Prison, following some major riots and destruction that happened in the first Arkham Asylum game. It's a chance to contain all of the criminals in one specific area, allowing them to run free as long as they don't try to escape. It keeps Gotham safer that way. At least that's their intent when explaining this to the public. Bruce Wayne thinks otherwise and decides to see for himself from inside the walls. So it's one long night inside Arkham City as Batman investigates what's really going on while trying to stop various things from happening. Arkham Unhinged is complementary to the Arkham City game. Now that the game is up and running, this is an ongoing weekly digital title that will have stories that are about what is going on in the game, as well as the backstories, motivations, and further exploits in the Arkhamverse. 
It's a chance to flesh out things that may be hinted at or not covered in the game, as well as focus on the brand new stories off the beaten path and follow these characters more closely. Anyone that's played the game knows there's a main storyline being told as well as side missions with various characters. There's a whole lot there to play with, and this ongoing is a chance to leave no stone unturned. To get in there and play with all the villains, as well as tell what is up with Batman and his family of heroes as the game takes place. Judging by what we've seen so far, the book aims to really flesh out the conflict between Two-Face and Catwoman. Does it simply give more detailed telling of Arkham City's story between the two characters that can be unlocked in the game, or is this something completely different? The Arkham City story leads off the first storyline of Unhinged. The first few chapters actually give a bit of backstory about how Catwoman and Two-Face arrived in Arkham City, leading up to the confrontation that kicks off the opening scene in the game. From there, we'll feature all sorts of the other stories inside and out of Arkham City and what people are up to. Some might relate or tie into certain continuities of the game, but most are a chance to tell the other stories and unique ideas and confrontations that don't occur in the game. One of the great things about Arkham City is the inclusion of so many characters from the Batman mythos. Can readers expect a similar cast of characters for Unhinged? Oh, definitely. That really is one of the best things. I have a full toy box to play play with. Most of Batman's Rose Galleries are in the game, and we're going to have a chance to go through go through and have stories that cover most, if not all, of them. There's a lot of crossover as well, with rivalries and vendettas. It's no surprise that after Arkham City opens, most of the villains have splintered off in their own sections of towns and their own gangs. Some are interested in acquiring more power and territory, some are just trying to survive, some want to break out, and some are happier now that they're inside and left alone. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on as many of them as possible, whether they were heavily featured in the game or not. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. I have had a chance to read these digital exclusives. If you have played the game and you really enjoy the game, this is kind of a an added little bonus to keep the keep the universe alive. Now, I don't know exactly how long they plan on doing this because it's unknown at this point because we didn't even know that it was going to happen until the game actually was released and then the first issue was released the same day. So it's unknown exactly how long this is going to continue on. But given the fact that there's a good chance it'll end up being a third game in the series, this could just keep going and eventually become the avenue for the lead-up to the other game. But I don't know if they're going to keep this going weekly, every week, for the next two years. Yeah, I'm not sure. They're definitely milking this franchise. Um, And I've not played Arkham City yet, but I I plan to. But... um, I am curious, just because I've heard, and I'm, I'm not sure if this may be cut out because of a spoiler or not, but I've heard uh, through a friend of mine that Two-Face isn't all that heavily dealt with in the game, so I'm wondering if this is a chance to either rectify that or sort of explain why that is. And either way, I mean, I mean, we, we read we read the um, the Arkham City tie-in miniseries going into the game, so I'm wondering if, if, if there's going to be any uh, threads from that book brought over to this book. I mean, it's different writers, not Paul Dini, but I'm just wondering if they're going to treat those in the same overall world. Yeah, I haven't read these yet because I'm still waiting for the game to come out on PC, which I pre-ordered months ago with the promise that it would be here by now. But I am very interested to read these once I have played the game. I really enjoyed the Arkham City, the initial time book, and I was surprised how much I liked that. I think Paul Dini probably had a lot to do with that but I'll definitely be trying a few of these and see if I like them. 
All right, so moving on to the next bit of news we have. Also on November 14th, DC Comics announced uh, the return of Batman Beyond, but also the return of Norm Brayfogle to the Batman universe. Batman Beyond will be returning in February, and it will be a new concept that will be released as Batman Beyond Unlimited. The first, For the first time ever, digital chapters of the comic will be released weekly, and then collected in print form once a month. The digital chapters will actually be released prior to the print version. There will be four chapters total. Um, this is... This is not that surprising as Batman Beyond, when it launched the ongoing series earlier this year, was one of the few books that was being released day and date, both print and digital, back in January of 2011. Uh, But this is the next step for digital comics and promotes them in a brand new way. The other news was the announcement that uh, the creators on the project, uh, joining Norm Brayfogle, will be Adam Beechin, and they will be actually writing the Batman Beyond storylines, and that's just actually half the series. So two of the chapters will be Batman Beyond, but the other two will be Justice League Beyond, which will feature the works of Dustin Wen and Derek Friedolfs acting as both artists and writers for that set. So you'll get four chapters per month collected into the one book, which will be called Batman Beyond Unlimited. As far as I know, I believe it's the, the print copy is going to be 48 pages long. So 48 pages of story, which means uh, you're getting a lot for your money because I believe it's only going to be priced at $3.99. So that's uh, a good deal for 48 pages considering for $2.99 we're getting about 24 pages of story at that. This I think this is really, really cool. Um, first of all, Norm Brayfogle is automatically awesome. It's just a shame that Adam, the name Adam rhymes so much with Alan because my heart skipped a beat for a second because I thought you were going to say Alan Grant, but never mind. Um, actually, I actually really think that it's cool that they're not just re- relaunching the Batman Beyond title with another um, another number one and actually expanding upon that with this whole unlimited thing. I think that's a really good idea. I think with the whole future theme, the, the digital think it's a good idea and like you said you're getting more pages for just one extra dollar instead of like two and a half so i mean i really i know marvel has kind of tried this stuff before and it's it's been more about price gouging than anything so um i really think this is a a good idea i've said several times and i approve of it i think it's a really interesting idea i was never that interested in the batman beyond books but i think what they're doing is uh quite an interesting thing and I'll, I mean obviously we'll be trying some of it I'm most excited about Dustin Nguyen getting some more work because I was always a big fan. A weekly digital comic coupled with a monthly print version I think is genius. I think that is a, is a step towards a good format for comics in general. The the whole Batman Beyond branch of the DC you know universe or multiverse whatever you want to call it has a lot of fans it's an area that I haven't delved into a whole lot, but I, I'm very intrigued by it. I just, I just haven't gotten around to it. I have, however, watched about 20 episodes of Batman the Animated Series for the first time, so I, I'm working on my Batman. But yeah, this is, uh, this is a book that I, I, I'm hoping that it gets a readership because it's the kind of initiative that I think deserves to be supported, and I hope the stories justify it. I definitely agree with Joe that uh, just the name Dustin Nguyen gets me really excited, and it's just to see it's it's great to see the cast of characters come back that we've seen in Justice League animated and uh, potentially to to get to know them a little better. So I think this could be really great. All right. So then, also on November fourteenth, the solicitations for February were announced. 
and let's run through them. Uh, so we already talked about Batman Beyond, so we don't need to talk about that. But as far as uh, creator changes go, Birds of Prey sees a new artist in the form of Javier Pina. And over in Batwoman, Amy Reader makes her debut as the artist for the next story arc, along with inker Richard Friend. The final issue of Penguin, Pain, and Prejudice hit shelves, and the Huntress miniseries, the second-to-last issue, will also be released. Batman Odyssey, the next installment, will be available. Tiny Titans will feature Clayface alongside other dirty, squishy characters. <laughs> as far as the main comic series go, there are no major changes, as many of them will continue their ongoing storylines that are already occurring. Moving into the media incarnations of the characters, both Batman Brave and the Bold and Young Justice see new issues. Young Justice features a story that takes place between episodes 7 and 8 of the animated series. And over in Brave and the Bold, Batgirl deals with the effects of Valentine's Day. Another interesting note is that the hardcover collecting Batman Incorporated has been re-solicited for April instead of December and now includes the Batman Leviathan Strikes one-shot. As for the rest of the DCU, the Batman universe continues to make guest appearances in a number of titles. Hawk and Dove feature the two traveling to Gotham City, and Dove teams up with Batman. Resurrection Man is institutionalized in Arkham Asylum. I, Vampire has Batman fighting vampires in Gotham City. Suicide Squad has Harley Quinn hunting down the Joker with Deadshot trying to stop her. All-Star Western, Justice League International, Justice League, and Teen Titans all continue to have their ties to the Batman universe as well. So, full month of solicitations for February. Um, really, the biggest news was Batman Beyond is going to be kicking off, which means the only one that is still pending f- to be announced is the new volume of Batman Incorporated or Batman Leviathan or whatever they want to call it. I'm a bit nervous about the new artist on Birds of Prey because I have been enjoying Saiz's work on there, and it's one of my favorite titles at the moment. And I'm looking forward to seeing... Resurrection Man go to Arkham because I've been reading that title and it'll be cool to see him interact with the Batman universe. Um, I yeah, it makes me nervous as well for regarding the Birds of Prey, uh, especially because the previous volume of Birds of Prey had all sorts of issues with one artist going on to another artist and just zero consistency. And it's just been really nice to have a consistent artist and for the art to look really clear and everything and. Uh, to really uh, complement the great writing, and so to have it switch up, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see, though. All right, so moving on to the next bit of news. On November 18th, the source revealed that issue number five of Detective Comics will feature a one-shot backup story, and the story will focus on the Penguin's view of his plan for Gotham. It will be written by Tony Daniel with art by current Penguin, Pain, and Prejudice artist Seisman Kudaransky. Now, what's unknown exactly as far as what's exactly going on, um, the current solicitation for Detective Comics number 5 does not necessarily say anything about a Penguin one-shot in it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, there, the, the issue is a normal size, normal price at two ninety nine, thirty two pages, so it's very difficult to understand whether or not Tony Daniel's starting to fall behind, and they are plugging in this one-shot for Detective Comics 5, and everything's going to get pushed back. I would not be surprised, because that has happened in the past with Tony Daniel. Um, but there's no mention of Seisman Kodransky on this on Detective Comics 5 with the solicitation. There's really no mention of a Penguin one-shot at all in the solicitation, so it really makes me wonder whether or not 
Um, we're going to get uh, a couple months, or one month, I should say, of pushback and delay from the main Tony Daniels story to have this one-shot story. It's unclear as far as I'm concerned. I would not be surprised if that was more solicitation mix-ups. I'm going to be furious, though, if this is an extra dollar or 60p for me, but still 60p. All right, so then moving into our last bit of news on November 18th, a source revealed their next set of three things that you need to know, this time focusing on the birds of prey. So this is what the three things, according to Dwayne Swinski, that you need to know. Number one, Batgirl is back on the team. Sure, Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl, was reluctant at first. She didn't necessarily want to be hanging out with a gang of outlaws. See next things to know, number two. And she has serious doubts about at least one member of the team. But to Batgirl, friendship trumps everything. And you'll see exactly how she finds her way to a permanent spot on the team in issues number four and five. Number two, Black Canary, Starling, and Katana can't show their faces in public. That's because they're outlaws to one degree or another. Dinah Lance, a.k.a. Black Canary, is wanted for murder. The rumor is she killed a dude with a single punch, but the truth is far darker and stranger than that. Evelyn Crawford, a.k.a. Starling, is wanted by at least six different intelligent organizations for knowing too much about how the world really works. How did she land in this predicament? Well, wait until you meet her Uncle Earl, a former spy who raised her, and also tries to kill her every now and again. He has Alzheimer's. And finally, Tatsu Yamashiro, a.k.a. Katana, is wanted by Japan's National Police Agency for her blood-spattered mission of vengeance against the Yakuza for killing her husband. Criminal profilers in her country think she's insane because she believes the soul of her husband resides in her sword. Thing is, her own teammates aren't so sure either. Number three. Poison Ivy has turned over a new leaf. Okay, not really. Pamela Isley is still very much a very dedicated eco-terrorist targeting the people and corporations that mess with Mother Earth. So why is she hanging out with a bunch of do-gooders like Black Canary and Batgirl, who doesn't like, trust, and really even tolerate Ivy? Pretty soon, say around issue number five, you're going to see that Ivy has a little side deal going on. Her enhanced biosuit amplifies her metahuman powers to an insane degree, but also comes at a price. And wait until you see how she plans on paying the tab. Alright, so those are the three things. Uh, Batgirl back on Birds of Prey. Uh, in my opinion, it's only, it was only a matter of time. And personally, I think this is why Gail Simone was getting so upset back in, I want to say, September. Because that would have been around the time where issues 4 and 5 would have been uh, being talked about. And said, and the scripts would have been passed around. And I remember her getting upset about Batgirl being in Birds of Prey. And I thought that was like the appearance in issue 2. But clearly, it was not. I find it funny that they say, uh, to Batgirl, friendship chumps and everything. As we see, you know, how she treats somebody that she loves by basically beating the crap out of them. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I just thought it was good that this was actually stuff we didn't know, unlike the Batwing one. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Joe. A lot of these three things you need to know were three things I already knew. But in this case, uh, it was pretty good points. I, I'm... I'm still curious. I'm wondering if this is Batgirl back on the team for the first time, or um, how back that's going to play out. Back on the team out. for the first time. <laughs> yeah, so she's back on the team, but the way I've been reading Birds of Prey so far is that she so has to be on the on team Birds for the first time, <laughs> or back on the team. The that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. 
You never heard the phrase "together again" for the first time? That's what I was. No. Okay. There are some things that don't exist on the other side of the ocean. They don't exist where I'm from either, and I don't live on any oceans. So. All I have to say is, Mr. Spurzinski totally owes me one because he accidentally revealed this to me in an email in October, and I did not, because I knew it was an accident, I did not put it on my uh, website, but, uh, you know, so it could be revealed like this. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I agree with Don, that whole thing about uh, friendship is to the utmost importance, but I'm not going to um, reference Nightwing visiting her. I'm going to reference the first issue of Birds of Prey, when she basically was really mean to Dinah and turning her down, like just overly not babs and mean to her. So that was that's kind of interesting. As for all the others, it's it's going to be good to to learn about the backgrounds of the different characters because we've only learned that they're they have sketchy pasts and they're not really clean. Like their pasts aren't clean. So it'll be good to learn what their history is. I do wonder how this is going to affect just the dynamic of the team because I think it's been really off to begin with. And in this issue, we've kind of made some strides. But each time we add a new person, it kind of throws off the team dynamic and then they have to reshuffle and figure out how to work together. And now it all seems like with this new information, it seems like all this stuff, they're going to have some trouble working together. So it will just be interesting to see. Alright, so that is all of our news. Not that much, but enough to talk about some things coming up in the Batman universe, especially with the solicitations and some of the upcoming events and some of the storylines. So, that is going to bring us into our comic reviews, and we're going to start off with Batgirl number three. Rush hour traffic, plus all the lights were against me. And you wouldn't have wanted me to speed, would you? Your good driving habits almost cost us our lives. Batgirl number three, A Breath of Broken Glass. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Ardian Siaf, inker Vicente Sifuentes, and colorist Ulysses Areola. The issue begins with Batgirl bursting out through the window of Mirror's previous residence, headset in capote, that means on the head, and speeding towards a speeding train. She brings us up to speed on Mirror and his motivations just as she hits the roof of the train. To complement this narration, she also continues to discuss her miracle and hopes for another small one. Now, inside the train, Batgirl looks for Rupert Ansel, a man who previously fell onto the tracks but was rescued by a good Samaritan. Mirror does not like this and wants this man to die the way he was meant to. For every Rupert Ansel saved by a stranger from certain death, there are thousands who die needlessly. Thousands. Trying to prevent the bomb from detonating, Batgirl grabs Rupert Ansel and desperately tries to... Uh, oh, it desperately explains to Mira that he cannot detonate the bomb because she should have died that first night in issue one when she was hanging off of a building and it would not correct the almost death if she were blown to bits. Yeah, did you follow that? That was a little tough. Good argument, Batgirl, but you forgot about the Good Samaritan. Insert explosion noise here. Later, Detective McKenna is trying to convince the commish that he needs her back on the force, but he is not budging from the protocol when a cop's partner is shot. After they hang up, McKenna accuses the commish of having a blind spot when it comes to bats. Back at police headquarters, Babs comes to visit her father for lunch. He feels like there is something amiss, and while she could say what is wrong, she chooses not to. Pops is worried about her daughter and wants her to be careful so that she does not revert back to her wheelchaired state. Later that night, 
Batgirl goes to the police impound yard in order to retrieve her cycle and is met by none other than Mile High Nightwing. They go for a ride on the bike, something which Babs likes, and Nightwing tells her that he and Batman are both concerned about her. In order to get him off the subject, she decides to start a little game of tag. As Babs leaps through the air, she flashes back to near the beginning of the relationship a few years ago. Uh Uh-huh. Babs narrates her feelings, and it is clear that both have a strong attraction to one another. Back then, weeping across rooftops, they were actually friends. Back in the present, Babs considers what they are now, right before the game of tag ends. Then, in a bacchic frenzy, Batgirl starts to beat on Nightwing until he calms her down by explaining that he and Batman are not concerned because they doubt her, but because they love her. In a tender moment, Babs touches Nightwing's hair, cuts a lock, holy heck, that is a large lock of hair, and gives it to him, and asks that she be allowed to continue her mission on her own. Yes, she cares about him, but she needs to do this alone. Dick complies and leaps off the building. Hopefully he had a good grasp on that lock of hair. All right, back row number three. Definitely an interesting issue. I thought everything up until the point where Nightwing showed up was pretty good. I thought her dealing with the the bomb on the train in the beginning of the issue was kind of interesting, although it was kind of unclear exactly how that all played out. She took the one gentleman who was saved in the past off the train, and then somehow the 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 whole purpose was that they still the the the, the character of Mir still blew up the bomb because the commuter train with the Good Samaritan was on it. That didn't make a lot of sense to me, and quite honestly, the the theory of well, he's he got this list of people who have to die specifically because they had some miracle happen to them and they shouldn't have had it, so they need to die. That's fine. I get the theory behind that, but what's the point of killing all these other people just to kill them because they're somehow linked to these other people that he needs to kill? It makes his mission kind of worthless. And they really need to either adapt that or, well, in a couple issues he won't be around so it won't matter. Um, the whole bit with Batgirl and Nightwing, I understand that the idea was trying to flesh out their past relationship. But I think it was handled very poorly. The flashbacks themselves were fine, but why all of a sudden randomly does Batgirl freak out and start beating the crap out of Nightwing while they're playing tag? Like, she's playing around with him... She is, you know, oh, come on, hop on my bike, we'll drive somewhere. Oh, let's play tag. Okay, well, let's play tag. Uh, Oh, you tagged me. Now I'm going to get all pissed off and I'm going to beat you to a pulp. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the fact that it it got to the point where Dick uh, Dick was actually bleeding seems as if it was kind of over the top for her just to... Just to, just to do that, just because. Hey, I'm. I don't like the idea of you guys telling me what to do. But they never actually said that, at all. She just jumped to that conclusion, and to me, that just shows that she's not very mature. Even though they're trying to pass her off as this very mature woman. Um, the art was okay. I have nothing really to say about the art. Um, overall, I think the story was was all right. Um, I just I th- there's a lot of holes. That's the problem. So with that, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. I actually like this issue the best so far, but with many trepidations. Let, let's just start at the top. I think that uh, the whole train sequence was, an, again, another instance of Barbara being written like Stephanie Brown. 
I mean, her saying, oh, I thought it was so great. I was actually going to stop this guy by myself. It's like, you've been back row before, right? It's, you know, that, that shouldn't be like, I don't know. It's just the, the, the tone of it is so alien to me with this. And I, we, we, I mention this all the time, but it's still there. That's still an aspect that I don't like of the book. And I remember um, Stella mentioning this in the first issue. Barbara looks weird in this comic book. I mean, especially when she's talking to Gordon. She looks really odd. I mean, I don't, need, I don't need her to look glamorous or anything, but she just looks kind of like freaky and inhuman at times. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, her, her facial expressions are like really, really weird. It, she looks like she's like, like seeing somebody die or whatever, but she's just talking to her old man. I don't know. But going into the good stuff, I did actually think that this, the, the first scene with Nightwing was really good. For all that Gail Simone apparently can't write Barbara Gordon, he, she can really write Nightwing very well. I thought Nightwing was really depicted well in this comic. I mean, he's been depicted well so far in the New 52, but I thought this was like, this, this felt really right. At one point, I really thought that like Stella had like kidnapped Gail Simone and started writing the issue because this got really, really, really shipper-heavy. Like, the entire issue is pointless, essentially. It's just Nightwing and, and Barbara Gordon flirting, which, you know, it's not all that bad. I mean, we've had, we've had comics like that before, but... It's in the middle of this whole mirror thing, and when he says, hey, do you want to fight the mirror together? She's like, no, chase me. And so he proceeds to chase her. And then, like Dustin said, when he catches up to her, she starts uh, beating him up. I hated that, that last sequence when she starts fighting him. It just shows that a lot of Barbara Gordon's like, emotions right now feel, f- they're not so much forced, but they're turned up to 11. And I don't find her a, a sympathetic character because she freaks out on Dick for legitimately no reason. And That's what she said. Yeah, that's what I said. And, like, that's what I think it will say. But, like, I mean, if it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't strike you as odd, just think of the, revol- the roles were switched. If Nightwing were to, you know, feel down in the dumps or sad or whatever, and Barbara Gordon uh, tried to, you know, help him say, oh, we're worried about you, and then Nightwing just popped out his screaming steps and started wailing on Batgirl, would, would, that, would, would that not seem weird? Because that's exactly what happens here. Like, he just, he just taps her on the shoulder, and then she starts just beating him up, which I don't buy for a second that she could actually beat up Nightwing. And it's just, like, this forced tension in this book just kills me. Um, the whole haircutting thing at the end made zero sense. And then he's like, oh, you're all alone now. I have this hair to look at for the rest of my life. I don't know. It's, it's, again, I did enjoy parts of this book, but then there were other parts that kind of tried to cancel it out. So I'll give it a middle of the road, two and a half out of five batarangs. I agree a lot with Don on this because I'm torn with this issue because you'll remember I really enjoyed the last issue and this one I felt like I was reading a Gail Simone book because I what I found was there are some really interesting themes in this book and things which I'd like to explore and see more of but that's like the main problem with the book because there was so much content crammed into it I mean you must have heard it during Stella's review she was just saying one thing and then another thing happened then another thing happened then another thing happened and there were loads of things which I'd like to see explored but they were just like said in a page and then moved on and like some of these things like you know deep like psychological things which that girl's feeling and then you don't see these explored or or played out at all they just sort of there throw that out in the open and move on just to flirt more with Nightwing. And I, I didn't appreciate that forced tension, like both emotional and physical, between Batgirl and Nightwing. And that read to me as really sort of transparent shipping, to steal Stella's catchphrase. 
Uh, we also got a lot more Simonisms in this issue. Stuff like um, grr, oh very grr. I mean, you heard how stupid that sounded when I said it. No one talks like that. At least it wasn't overtly sexual, but it was still annoying. And, I mean, I, I really like the art in this issue. I thought, as much as I like Eddie Barrows, I actually preferred Saif's Sy- Nightwing. And I think that all the covers by Adam Hughes have been really great. And I, whilst I enjoyed this issue, I think it was too condensed. And I'm going to give it an optimistic three because I like the direction, but I'd like to see it sort of done a bit more in-depth instead of this kind of just looking at the surface of stuff. I believe in miracles. Um, Gil is obviously teasing the whole how she got her legs back miracle bit with this, basically this entire plot arc. But she hits on it a lot at the beginning of this issue as well. Um, and if, if it wasn't clear in issue one or two, she basically, with this issue, writes the fact on a post-it note and slaps it to your forehead. I noticed the, uh, for a good time, called the Red Hood spray-painted on the train. Um, I'm not sure if that qualifies as shipping or or advertising shipping costs. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Um, I, I'm a little confused. Maybe it should have said, for a good time, call start. Yeah. But um, bumps. Or Red Hood. Or, or no, 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 uh, Arsenal on that. Or just Roy. Have you noticed they haven't called him Arsenal yet? But we'll talk about that later. Um, I'm a little confused about Mirror's logic with the bombing of the trains and, and like, like how it was supposed to be like mechanically planned out where she's passing that other train and that's when it goes boom and why there's a, another person that she catches eye with. I didn't really get all that. The storytelling was weird for me. The conversation between Jim Gordon and Babs, the art was a little weird there, but it was more engagement was being said. The part where she's like, this is what I want to say. And she like, you know, spills her guts out. And then at, you know, she's like, this is what I actually say. And she just says something cryptic. And it reminds me of conversations I've had with my wife. Um, and, you know, after like a, a decade of, of being married, it, it, conversation and communication is a little ongoing process. Because, you know, there are things that she wants me to understand, but she doesn't say them. But anyways, it just sort of rang true for me there. I love my wife, but, you know. I thought the reluctant attraction between Babs and Dick was actually kind of sweet. Uh, I, I do wonder what it's implying about their history. We talk about how they're flirty whenever they were both superheroes together. Have they been in touch since she lost her legs? Because pre-Flashpoint, they, they got together with her as Oracle and him as, uh, I don't know if it was Nightwing or Batman, I think it was Nightwing. So has that still happened? We don't get any reference to it here. Has she basically just been completely cut off from him ever since she lost her legs? I don't know. Just curious to see what, what's actually being implied there. I don't know that I really want to see them get back together, though, anytime soon. I'm glad they're acknowledging that there's something there, but I don't, I don't know that we need to get any more, any more of that in the future. I think the problem that Barbara was facing whenever she and Dick were, were going, <laughs> sort of say going at it, but that would be uh, the other redhead that Dick knows. Whenever they were fighting on the roof is that Barbara really feels like she's expected to prove herself. Like the conversation starts off with, you know, can you do it alone? And she's like, well, let's see, Dick. And so she starts fighting with him. And then he says something that sets her off. I think the problem, though, is that Gail is trying to make Barbara a complex character. But I'm not sure she's being as subtle about that as she might be. 
Um, I don't know if she's torn between like spreading her development over time versus trying to get an understanding of the character into the reader's minds like as quickly as possible at the start of the series. I don't know. When I was reading Batwoman and I saw how that relationship was being handled and how much wasn't stated, it was just shown through the art, I wondered if we'd actually be enjoying some of this story more if we didn't have the inner monologue constantly going of Batgirl. If we were just trying to, you know, trying to read her on her wor- on her words and actions, if we might actually find it more mysterious and interesting, I don't know though. I do think this was the best issue so far. It's certainly the one I enjoyed the most. I, I think it does still have room for a lot of improvement, but but I, I did enjoy the book. I'm going to say three and a half out of five. Yeah, I would agree with Don that I think this is the best. This is the best that the book has had thus far. I think to go on something that John said, I think the point of this whole shenanigan uh, was, uh, you know, to prevent them from getting together. Because I just right now I feel like DC does not want to go in that direction, and so in both of these books they've just kind of put it. Uh, in a way that they can't get together at this moment. I think that seems to be their purpose, unless I'm just, like, really paranoid, but I feel like that's the reason. Anyways, the issue, you know, it starts right off where the the other um, left off, so, you know, there's little time for you to catch up or really get confused, but I think Batgirl's narrative, at least at this point, does a suitable job refreshing our memories, though it seems as if the plot does take some liberties or conveniences. You know, a good example of this is the headset it just seems a little too convenient that she has a headset uh so she can talk with mirror i feel like the the scene and the issue could have gotten along fine without communication with the mirror um, i think he gave her one i know but isn't that strange so he said on your way yeah so on your way out to this exploding i want you to pick this up so i can talk to you like it just seems a little weird I don't really get Barbara's change of heart all of a sudden in regards to miracles. You know, now, against a naysayer like Mirror, she becomes a big proponent of miracles. Uh, And then, of course, she, like, treats them lightly at the end, saying, oh, but I only want a little one. Whereas in issue two, she's like, "I, I don't really know about this. Don't really know if I deserve it. I mean, it just seems like we're going back and forth. You need to pick one stance, I think, on how you feel about this. I don't really like the what-if scene between Jim and Babs. It forces a lot of much-needed story progression into off-panel land. Like, all this stuff kind of happened. We find out Gregor is definitely not going to date her. And I thought, wait, when did this happen? It, It wasn't... Like, in issue two, he says that he was a little nervous about dating but they never really stopped and there were all these things that sort of happened like she's having trouble with the job having trouble with all these other things and i feel like if we could have had that in the issue somewhere so we could actually get to know barbara gordon and who she is in this life now i think that would be great but no it's thrown away and then it's compressed here so i didn't really like that i also wonder why there is all this sudden information that her condition could deteriorate. Is there a backup plan for this book? Like, if this is not taken, are they just gonna put like just gonna push a button? Oh, her condition deteriorated. It's, she's actually going to be Oracle again. Like, is that what's gonna? Ha- I don't know. I just wonder. Like, all of a sudden, this is kind of thrown upon us. And then, yeah, let's talk about the Nightwing things. You know, I love some dick and bad shipping. Yes, you do. (laughs) 
I know, right? But it seems like a strange time to run it in this story, especially in the midst of the Mirror storyline. I also, you know, wonder about the point of it all, but like I said at the very beginning, I feel like it is a way to get these two away from each other, albeit for a little time or however long they want. Uh, the, you know, the entire latter half of the issue really is shipperific, and it does read like fan fiction. The feelings between the two are obviously strong as Bab ref- Babs reflects back on her feelings for him. I do like the tag sequence blending into the backflash, but the backflash seriously draws into question the whole timeline. And I just I just don't really necessarily understand that the first time they met was a few years ago and May I ask you something? Sure. In the flashback, uh and this goes out to anybody who can answer it. Did Barbara look significantly younger than Dick in that flashback? Yes, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Because when I first read that, I nearly fell out of my chair because traditionally <laughs> she's older, and now she looks like a 10-year-old compared to his, like, 30-year-old in that thing. And, and I was it's like, only a few years ago. Exactly. Is, yeah. I was about to say, what betrayal is this? But I, I wasn't sure. The flashback reminded me of the Batman TV series. <laughs> oh, with how he the she is there. And stuff like that. Oh, yeah. That's true. You know, I actually cannot even begin to tell you how upset I am that Babs constantly refers to her background in ballet. And while I was reading this, oh, yeah. I was, like, yelling at Donovan about this. And, no, it, because that is not her background. And, and it's just, like, another thing that has changed from the character we know. Her background was in gymnastics. And it just really frustrates me. And that whole, like, she jumps off the roof and she's, like, really awkward. Like, if you're a ballerina, shouldn't you be a bit more light on your feet i don't know i'm just it just like really upsets me and it's such like a tiny detail she likes ballet now because flash tried to save his mom okay Uh, i don't even know what to do with that i i guess that's we can only accept that and move on um i think it it makes sense that babs gets upset with nightwing um you know being perceived as weak or breakable has always been a negative catalyst for her and in the past she has always lashed out at him for this very reason you know misinterpreting his concern for her uh so while these feelings do make sense i do totally agree that she gets a little out of control thus the whole bacchic frenzy thing uh and goes too far you know and then this cutting of the lock of hair you she has to be alone and nearly reveals her full feelings for him but seriously why the hair this is this is so strange does he even recognize the implications of this i mean cutting of a lock of hair has been like done since ancient times it often would like symbolize like in this lock of hair would be like kind of the vital force or spirit of somebody and so to give it to somebody is almost giving that person power or control over that person and of course we have the romantic gestures that we think of all the time in 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 jane austen and everything like that so i can't really i mean is this like hope for the future remember me put this in your locket does nightwing even have a locket it's just such a strange thing and she does whack off a large amount of hair it seems very strange if a girl told me she only wanted to be friends and she gave me her hair i would think that was really freaking weird why does she call him Richard all the time? Mixed messages, to be sure. I do, for some small details, I also picked up on the For a Good Time called The Red Wing. I liked the reference to the Skeleton Key story by Scott Snyder and a connection to Higgins' Nightwing when Dick makes his comment about loving redheads. And, you know, for hope for the future, for people that read Spider-Man, I know Dustin's a huge fan of Spider-Man, um, there were... 
there were birds. That's a lie. <laughs> there were birds flying in the second page when Babs is on the train. So I actually wonder if Mephisto has something to do with her miracle. If you know what I'm talking about. But I give this a three out of five, uh, and somewhat, you know, tenuously, like Joe did. All right. Um, so then, over on the website, the Newsdigger gave it four out of five, and Comic Uno gave it three and a half out of five. So that is going to give the issue an average of. Three out of five batarangs. I was just going to say, Don brought it up as well. Another couple of things which bothered me a bit was when they were calling each other by their full names in public, which didn't make much sense. Well, she's never called him, like, throughout this issue, she calls him Richard strictly. And that's, I mean, okay, new, new continuity, whatever, but, like, that's still, like, weird to me. Like, Richard, I'm fine, Richard. I'll, I'll talk to Batman later, Richard. It's, it's like, Call him Dick, or or form by wonder or somebody. Did anyone else think it was funny though when it was like this terrorist guy mirror? Can you take him alone? Hmm, good question. Let's see. Tag trips him up, and yet when she actually fought the mirror, she nearly got her ribs broken. Yeah, exactly. Stupid. Very. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So let's move into our next issue, which is Red Hood and the Outlaws number three. Hello. So glad you could make it. Redhead and the Outlaws 3, Jason Todd, a former Robin trying to make sense of the world around him, Roy Harper, a self-professed recovering superhero taking it one day at a time, Coriander, a culinary herb with citrus overtones native to the Mediterranean region, and also a slave princess for another world who will never be chained again. Don't call them heroes. Don't call them spices often found in Indian food. Don't call them a team. Call them Red Hood and the Outlaws. In cherish is the word I use to destroy you. Written by Scott Lobdell with art by Kenneth Rockefort. Okay. Our story opens with Red Hood talking to the childlike empress in the ivory tower. Only by childlike empress, I mean a boy child who is actually the 4,000-year-old Saru the Proctor. And by ivory tower, I mean the entrance of the Chamber of All somewhere in the Himalayas. Red wants to pursue the untitled the creature from last issue further into the temple to find out why it killed all his old buddies in the all cast. The little moon child says, sure, but he's going to take some of their most precious memories as collateral one from each of them. They uh, give him the memories in the form of glowing balls of, of, of something. And then they continue into an MC Escher painting on crack with no clue which path to follow, but choosing one at random. Meanwhile, Saru takes a peek into Starfire's most cherished memory and sees her as a young enslaved princess who kills a guard for showing more pity than her royal pride will tolerate. This disturbs Saru and the reader as well. Change scene back to our um, heroes, for lack of a better word, where they reach a room with a big shiny thing on a distant pedestal. As they approach, spikes sprout out of the floor, which isn't really a floor, but reveals itself to be the back of a giant slore. So giant that any of the three of them would fit into, like, its ear or nostril. That's how big this creature is. It slurps its long, nasty, tenderly tongue around Cory, and then we go with Saru back into Roy Harper's past. He's duking it out with Killer Croc, who seems to be an awesome psychologist, you know, for an anthropomorphic crocodile who used to be just a big, strong guy with a skin condition in the 1980s. But turns out that Harper was depressed because Oliver Queen shunned him and cut off his finances. So we now feel bad for the kid who used to be rich but is now one of the 
So Corey has been eaten, but Jason doesn't care. He finally reaches the big shiny thing that is somehow still on a pedestal in the distance, and he sees that it is a snow globe of Colorado. This is not the droid he was looking for. About that time, Corey blasts her way out of the monster's chest cavity, like in that scene from Alien, and carries her two boyfriends away. Moments later, they reemerge into the foyer chamber where Saru returns the confiscated memories to Roy and Corey, but Jason refuses his. We then see into the memory where Jason is sick with the flu in the Wayne Manor in his Robin costume, and he and Batman call in sick to the superhero center so they can stay home and watch TV and eat popcorn snuggle up on the couch. Next issue, the world considers them outlaws. We're about to see why. All right, Red Hood and the Outlaws number three. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I cannot tell you a whole lot of what exactly is going on. I I really don't know what's going on as far as who exactly they're battling, why exactly they're there, other than the idea of somebody got killed and Red Hood is trying to avenge their deaths, but I don't know why, other than they may or may not have had some sort of part in training him in something that Batman didn't have a part in. Very unclear on that. I did think the memory part was kind of interesting for all three of the characters. I thought that was that was the, the all three memories were were interesting because we have finally started to learn a little bit more about these characters as they exist in this current DC universe. Um I, I like the art. I, you know, with all this weird, crazy crap that's happening every single issue, uh, Ruckford's art is is pretty amazing in my opinion. Even though it's insane stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, it still looks really good, and I can appreciate stuff that looks good even though the story doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. I'm looking forward to once they get past this whole we got to travel to the Himalayas to find out some secret. Um, and we get into something else because that's the only thing that's kind of bugging me about this series is the weird Himalayan trip that needs to be going on. Um, so with that, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. All right, I'll keep it short and sweet. Didn't like this issue, but I will say again, just like the last uh, review we did, I did like this the best out of all three of them. Um, the last scene saved the issue for me. In fact, I think that scene was so good that it seemed like it was actually... I don't know. It seemed like people write Jason Todd a certain way these days. I thought that was very, very in character for him and Batman. I question why the most cherished memories of Starfire and um, Arsenal are memories where they are like under duress. I, I, I understand the positive aspects of it, for, but for them to be the most cherished memories is kind of... I know they're saying, oh, they're so tortured, they live all these horrible lives, but it, eh, I don't know. We don't get enough context for that for me to, to really have that be justified, at least, at least personally. I can't stand Roy's ridiculous sexism in this in this book. Why why is he sexist? And essentially, the issue still doesn't make much sense to me. How does Jason automatically know where to find this four millennia year old guy? But I guess that's the way the story is being told. Didn't like it, but the last except for the last few pages, two out of five betterings. Batman Odyssey makes more sense than this book. I don't get it. The bits of it I liked, strung together by random, pretty stuff. It's, that's all I can really say. I I, I just don't get it. I, I love the last, mem- the last memory, Jason Todd's memory. I question why he wanted to give it up, because 
if that is his memory, then he's given that away. He's not, it's clearly not in his head anymore. That doesn't exist for him, so he's never going to be able to think of that again. So if he's trying to disassociate himself with Batman, then this isn't really a Batman title anymore. So I don't really know what to say. I'll just give this two out of five because it the art's good and that last scene was... I like, I like I did like that a lot. I actually really dug this issue. Um, I guess I'm going to be the odd one out here. Um, I gave it some snark in the synopsis because it does kind of take some zany turns. But I feel like Lebdell was going for some like you know big Eastern fantasy concepts, and and for me for me it worked. The stolen memories was certainly a creative way to give us some insight into the personalities of the team members. Uh, much more effectively probably than anything we've seen to this point. The flip side of that is if Labdell has to like sidestep the entire story to give us these sorts of insights, if he can't develop character through the course of, you know, quote unquote normal storytelling, that, that is going to be kind of a problem for the series. Uh, I did find Corey's childhood scene intriguing to me, it is certainly in line with the idea of a super-powerful, ray-blasting princess being held as a slave, though I, I wonder how she could possibly be kept as a slave if she's that powerful, unless she's doing it voluntarily, which to me actually adds to her character. Um, I don't know if the violence that she shows agrees with previous treatments of the character, but I'm kind of at the point where I don't really care about how things are being changed. I just want them to be good at this point. Um, like everyone else, my favorite part of this book by far was the final two pages um, Joe mentioned why would Jason have wanted to give that memory up. I'm not sure that the three of them know exactly which memories have been removed. It's like if you were to try to give me a catalog right now of everything you remember uh, about your life, it, it would take a lot of effort. They might not realize what's been removed, and so Jason might not realize what he's giving up there. But yeah, Jason Todd, he had such a brief tenure in the books, and I know that there's been some stuff recently with him as a villain, but... I haven't read any of that. I just know, you know, his time as Robin. And for me, looking back on those experiences is kind of like Peter Parker looking back at Gwen Stacy. It's just this this time that can't be recaptured. But yeah, I had issues with the with the first issue of this series. I, I wasn't on to talk about the second issue. I thought it was some interesting storytelling there. Each installment of this book, I, I'm liking more. And this one, I I really really dug, and I'm going to give it the full on five out of five batterings. I guess to go off of John, I guess I'll be doing this a lot here. I, I think that he actually is, uh, he does recognize which memory, I feel like, or he just knows that it is one of those those special memories with Batman. And I think this just really shows us um, how tragic a character Jason really is. And just that probably having or retaining that sort of memory just reminds him of, you know, what it was in the past and what he's lost and that he's just never going to be that way again. Um, but that's just my reading in it. Um, <clears throat> the first thing that caught me off guard in this issue was Red Hood and Starfile, uh, Starfire almost acting like a couple on, like, the second page with Roy holding her from behind. It was so tiny, and yet uh, that was, like, my focal point. I just thought, what is going on? You know, the whole memory thing, both taking them and viewing them seems like a bad plot point with not much purpose. We don't really learn much about the characters except about their bad characterizations. Starfire's memory, I think, well, it was just awful and it was messed up, not in line with her actual character uh, and her past. Roy's makes an idiotic character seem even more idiotic and Croc looks like 
dare I say it, wizard here. Uh, and, and, you know, Croc giving life advice. Who would, what, why? Uh, you know, the only saving grace, uh, I would say, is Jason's, but more on that later. The dialogue coming from Roy's mouth is always dumb, obnoxious, and pointless. You know, how does it further anything? But I guess we do get to find out that he is sexist. Um, you know, Starfire is back to the dumb alien again, rather than J-Lo, who is apparently about as smart as Goldfish and can't remember anything, though she... Uh, retains the memory from her childhood. I don't know. The only saving grace of this issue, and I mean only, is Jason's memory. You know, it's touching and poignant. And for that fact and that fact alone, I give the book a 2 out of 5. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If this book only centered around Jason, it would actually be worthwhile. Just following on from what John said then, he made me realize that, of course, he wouldn't realize what memory he was giving up. Because even if he did, at the time of giving up, once he's given it up, he wouldn't remember it. So, and you can't have a memory of a memory, so it wouldn't even exist anymore. He wouldn't even know that ever happened, because that was a memory he's given up, if that makes sense. So, of course, what John was saying was, or from my understanding, he was saying that he wouldn't actually know what memory he was giving up. And as soon as he's given it up, it's not like he'd remember what it was to get it back again. Is that what you were getting at? <laughs> yeah, you took it one step farther than I did, but I totally agree with you. And it almost makes it tragic. I mean, almost it does make it tragic that he now no longer knows that he ever had this moment. All right, and then over on the website, uh, Comic Uno gave the book four out of five veterans, and the News Digger gave it three out of five veterans. That is going to give the issue an average of three out of five veterans. Let's move into our next issue, Batman and Robin number three. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. Batman and Robin, issue three, Night Moves, written by Peter J. Tomasi, illustrated by Patrick Gleason. We begin with Damien and Alfred playing a game of chess while Batman is perched on the architecture of Wayne Manor, surveying the newly installed security systems. Alfred wins because he rules, and when Bruce returns to the cave, he heads out on patrol, instructing Damien to stay behind for what we find out is the third night in a row. He's spooked by nobody and wants to keep his son safe. Damien's being petulant and dashes off on a motorcycle, but good old Alfred has tagged a bat tracker onto his cape for safekeeping. Robin intercepts a mugging and makes short work of the thugs before being set upon by Nobody. Nobody tells Damien that he can tell he's holding back for Batman's sake, and though Damien beat a thug to the point of brain damage, Nobody kills a guy and paralyzes Damien himself to to deliver a message to Batman. Luckily, the Cape Crusader gets the drop on Nobody, and the two have a master-level fistfight. Despite a broken arm, Batman manages to beat the pudding out of Nobody before the villain relies on Ultrasonics which disorientates Batman as he's hit by, a cor- hit by a car. Batman wakes up to find him and Robin tied to a convertible. The car is positioned in front of a drive-in movie screen, and nobody starts up a film for the disabled dynamic duo to watch. To be continued. All right, Batman and Robin number three. I thought this was kind of interesting. I think that the... I think we're getting... I think at this point, with issue three, we've realized that, you know, Bruce and Damien have their issues. I know that that's part of the whole point of the series, but I think that they kind of need to figure out some way to not necessarily, you know, make them 
completely fine with each other, but I think they need to do a better job of not just making it where Bruce never says anything to Damien about why he's doing what he's doing. Damien just saying, well, he's doing this because I think he's doing this because of this. It's just, it just seems like we, we're getting the same thing every issue. Nothing's really changing. Bruce doesn't want him to go on patrol. Bruce wants to keep him safe. But Damien doesn't know why he wants, why he doesn't want him to go on patrol or that he wants to keep him safe. Is you know, it's just, it's to me, it just seems like it's getting old. It seems like Alfred has to be in the issue to be the communicator between the two of them, and it's just kind of annoying. I get the reason behind it, but to me, it's just annoying, and I wish they would just move along to something besides focusing so much on the fact that they just cannot communicate with each other, and they have to have Alfred kind of interpret each other. The art is fine. Um, I, I think the character of Nobody is an interesting character, as besides the fact that he knows the identity of Batman, and he could have a he could have a distinct past when uh, Bruce Wayne was training. I think it's going to be interesting to to learn more about this character. But again, after we see something in the last issue, he really only appears to tell Damien, "Listen, I know you want to kill these guys. That's what you should do." And I, I like the idea of the fact that, you know, that's the way he does it does things, and he knows that that's what Damien wants to do, and he wants to he wants Batman to do that too, but the reality is that Batman's not going to do it, so he's just trying to focus on Damien. Cool theory, um, but I wish we would learn more about this character, which we may with that movie that could be airing at the end of the issue, and then I, we assume it will be also showing in the beginning of the next issue. But again... No knowledge as far as that. So overall, I'm going to give this uh, three and a half out of five batterings. I can certainly see what Dustin is getting at um, or is saying with this title. And to be honest, when I, when I was when I first opened this up and I started reading it, I was wondering it too because with the first issue I was really high on, and the second issue I was slightly less enthused. And when I first started reading the, the, this issue. I was really wondering if my praise for Patrick Gleason's characterization of Damien wasn't um, wasn't too soon, because he's consistently written Damien as a really unlikable character. Which we've we've had that song and dance when he first appeared, and he's mellowed out since then. Now he's kind of back to that, at least in this title. But where that changes is the fact that it's the, the specific focus of the title, or at least this specific storyline, and. When it gets to the point where both Damien and Nobody are kind of just dis- inwardly discussing that, then this issue, this this title gets back on track with me, and I really like it. I like the idea that Alfred is is a, a major part in the story because Alfred's always sort of like the watcher of Batman and Robin. I mean, Bruce is the one you know who's training Robins, and Alfred is the one who's overseeing the, all of it, so they can have someone to talk to when when Bruce is being too stoic. So it's, it's totally appropriate for him to have a, a definite role in this title. It makes, it makes perfect sense. And I like Damien's characterization. I like that in the first issue, we get to see that he tries to stop guys on his own, and they end up getting killed. You know, maybe he was too, too overzealous or whatever. And the last issue, we see him kill a bat surreptitiously. And this issue, he saves a couple and takes down muggers, but he lets his anger go too far and uh, pretty much leaves the guy brain dead. And you can see the look on his face that, he realizes his issues, and he's not sure how to deal with it on his own. You can see that written on his face, and it's really well done art by um, Patrick Gleason. So I really enjoy the whole tone, the whole 
atmosphere the stories this story has. I really like the writing. I really like the um, just the character development. This is an extremely character driven story, and Tomasi's voice for Batman is, is very very good. I really like the fight scene between Batman and Nobody. It was quick and brutal, but it, it was very much like you know you could tell Batman wasn't playing around. Um, and the last scene reminded me of Return of the Joker with the whole uh, movie uh, thing. Yeah, I I really like this this issue when I when I reread it for the review and and even when I, when I finished it the first time I was like yeah we're back to where we started for and I think the art was excellent as well so I'm gonna go for the full Monty give this five out of five batterings. I find that I'm liking this book more and more every month and I'm coming to terms with Damien's new characterization and I do really like the way Alfred is written here. And I said before that I was, I'm not that keen on Gleason's art style. And whilst that's true, still, there were some panels in this issue which I did actually really like. But the thing with this book, aside from all the references to Batman Incorporated, which I find interesting to see that concept still alive, I'm not that interested in the plot of this book. What I am interested in is the character dynamics, their relationships, and how they all react together. So because of that, I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. But I don't really have much to say about it. I love that Alfred plays chess with Damien. That just makes me smile. The title page, Splash, is an awesome image for like a quarter page panel. I feel it's a, it's a bit of a waste of a page, especially since there's nothing in the art like at all that complements the caption from Alfred up in the top left corner. It would work really well right next to the night image from the previous page, but oh well. The bat plane design, the new bat plane design, reminds me of Galactus's head. And uh, Alfred really gets to shine in this book. He, he gets points for planting the tracer on Damien's bike, and Damien kind of gets points for noticing, but Alfred gets mega points for using the first tracer as a distraction for planting the second tracer. I thought that was very, very clever. And the exchange between him and Damien at the end of the Batcave scene was very poignant, I thought. Don't give up your day job. And here upon says, don't worry, I won't. Um, it's obvious that Alfred invests a lot of emotion in his charges. And even though he's known Damien for a relatively short time, you know, he is as invested as keeping this boy safe and well and alive as, as we could want him to be. The fact that nobody knows their identities, I think, is used to great effect in this issue. As said a little bit before, I'll just reiterate, he knows a lot more about Damien than Robin is used to having people know about him. And Morgan is a psychologically manipulative about it, too. It's really kind of a, kind of a cool read. Uh, the fights in this issue were choreographed much better than either of the action scenes in previous issues. That was one of my biggest problems with both of the two previous issues, was the action scenes were sometimes kind of hard to follow. And I thought that it worked much better here. Uh, and I never found myself wondering what was going on or how or why. And the cliffhanger was very intriguing. I, I imagine the whole story behind Nobody and his relationship with Batman is going to be brought out next issue. But, like, you know, they're, they're strapped to the car. Is, is there a bomb under the car? There's bound to be some jeopardy involved that hasn't been named and not just, you know, having to watch a bad home movie. But I am looking forward to issue four. I'm going to give this one four and a half out of the five bat arrays. 
Okay, I thought that this was an intense, emotionally charged, and action-packed issue that happens to be the best of the series so far. The comic has all sorts of great moments. The chess game not only gives us a great interaction between Damien, the dog, and Alfred, but, you know, it teaches us a little more about Damien, and that while he believes he is the best, he can still be brought down to the level that he should be at, though he may not really like this. I love Batman continuing to use this new technology. I love seeing him grow in his treatment of his son and to see the different ways that he tries to show his approval and love. It's always a struggle with him, but he's still learning. Preventing him from leaving the cave because he's concerned about him and trying to get him and the dog to bond for multiple reasons. I thought that was just great. But you know, in the end, boys will be boys, and Damien still goes off on his own, and and I think that seems fitting. I love Alfred playing the concerned parent as well, and then, you know, the scene with the bat tracers was so fun. I'm glad that Robin encountered a routine baddie, because I think it's fitting that he he really take his aggressions out and and lose his self-control that he had, you know, been gaining little by little. Morgan is definitely like an evil Jiminy Cricket, to be sure, trying to get Damien to come back to the dark side. Uh, There are cookies over there, so I've heard. And this is, you know, a great character to do that with. You know, you can totally see Damien hesitating. And then he's totally Shiva tapped out and bears witness to everything that happens next. Morgan talking about Robin being held back by Batman and wearing the wrong costume just makes me think um, to Teen Titans, the animated series, when Slade tries to get Robin to be an apprentice. And it makes me wonder whether this could uh, be possible with Damien. And then Batman arrives, and there is just a great fight scene, and Batman is taken down by technology, which I certainly thought as being ironic and really making a nice connection to the beginning. The panel with the car in the grassy field, oh my word. You know, I don't even know, like, what to say about it, but, you know, you're just completely caught off guard. It may have just been me, but just flipping to it, I was just like... What is going on? Like, what is this? And you're just totally put in the mindset of the characters because when they wake up, that is, like, their reaction. I just thought that was so uh, brilliant. Finally, the art is really great with, um, you know, the actual images and the organization within the panels and how the panels are actually arranged. I thought that this was just a a flippin' amazing issue. Five out of five bat rings. All right, and over on the website, the Newsdigger gave the issue four out of five veterans, so that is going to give the issue an average of four out of five veterans. Let's move into our next issue, Batwoman number three. Hello, Gotham. I just want to tell you one thing. It gets better. Okay, Batwoman number three, co-written by W. Hayden Blackman and J.H. Williams III, with more amazing artwork by the latter. The issue opens where the last one left off with Batwoman fighting the effects of the weeping woman. Breaking free from her watery grip, Batwoman swims to the surface where she barely has enough time to cough up the salt water in her lungs before she is confronted by Chase. Chase starts to question Batwoman about the events that took place in the eulogy storyline, but... Taking full advantage of her military military training, Batwoman escapes before her captors can react. As Batwoman is fleeing the scene, we realise that Kate is missing her date with Maggie. Maggie attempts to phone Kate, but as Kate is not there, Bette answers. 
However, as Bet hangs up, Kate stumbles into the room. Kate tells Bet that she will no longer be training her, and Bet, obviously upset by this news, storms out. We cut to Chase interrogating Kate's father, but this appears to be more about the potential connection to Batwoman, opposed to Chase suspecting Kate. After getting nothing from Kate's father, Chase phones the head of the DEO for a progress report, and he tells her that she should focus her attention on Batwoman's sidekick. Meanwhile, we see Bette donning her old Flamebird costume, and Maggie arrives at Kate's penthouse to find out why she was stood up. The scene and the book ends with Kate and Maggie kissing, whilst Flamebird takes up the cliché pose atop a Gotham gargoyle. To be continued. Batwoman number three. Uh, I thought this this was... In my opinion, I thought it was better than the last two issues. I thought this was a step up as far as the actual storyline. We see some progression with uh, Flamebird and exactly how that's going to play out is yet to be seen. Um, but it's nice to see that despite the fact that uh, Kate is not wanting to have anything to do with Bet getting hurt or being in danger... That's still going out there and doing it on her own. Although she, Kate does bring up some good points about you know what does Bet have to fight for? She's never really had anything to really affect her the way that all of these other heroes in Gotham City have had. So with that, um, the art was was amazing as usual by J, by J H Williams. I don't have a whole lot to say. I thought the the moments between Maggie Sawyer and Kate Kane at the end were very emotional and impact impacting and I thought they were they were done well. I'm almost wondering if it's gonna to come to the point where Kate is going to tell Maggie that she is Batwoman just because it just seems like be- there's so much emotion that at some point it's going to come out. I don't know when, but uh, that would be interesting because of the relationship that Maggie Sawyer has with Cameron Chase and telling her what she knows about Batwoman. Um, the whole thing with um, Cameron Chase and the DEO, interesting stuff, but again, it, it it's definitely tying into what happened with uh, in Detective Comics right before Greg Rucka left the series. But uh, I think overall, it, it was a great book. Uh, four out of five batterings. Yes, yes, yes. This was awesome. Even more so than than Batman and Robin. I. Love the heck out of this this book, and it's funny because like that woman's always been interesting to me. She's always been kind of cool, but like she's never really like really really like been on my radar in terms of like the best kind of storytelling. But this really really got to me, and it's all because again character driven. It's all character driven for uh, Kate Kane, and it's like it's a lot like whenever Batman goes up against the Scarecrow, and Scarecrow you know pulls out the fear toxin and Batman sees his parents dying for the uh, millionth time. But this is like, okay, it's the same kind of idea, but since Batwoman's never sort of gone up against that before, had her haunted memories come flooding and rushing to her, you know, out of nowhere, like that kind of psychological attack, we see the natural uh, consequences of that. It's affected her throughout the entire issue, but it's not like, you know, oh, I'm seeing my sister everywhere I look in the mirror. It's very subtle, but it's very telling as well. It's very well told. The art's great as usual, and even in some respects, like, I like how she escapes from the beach with them shooting at her. And, you know, 
they do that trope where she's sort of like painted in almost, or the art is a lot more specific when she's talking to Betty. But that's all, that's always more intense because you see a lot more detail on her face. I love the scene where she's changing and Betty's changing to Flamebird, especially the last uh, panel with Flamebird's face. That's gorgeous artwork, and I love the scene with her and uh, Maggie Sawyer because, I mean, it's <laughs> you want to talk about uh, shippers and relationships and and sex and all that stuff. I mean, this is one of those instances where it makes sense that these characters would embrace or hook up or whatever just because of the emotional state they're in right now. It's not done for the sake of it. Kate is just torn up, and she's and Maggie's like, "Tell me what's really going on." And then it's like in Barbara, it's like a Batgirl. You, you know, she wants to tell her whatever, but she can't. But Kate can't handle that emotionally. She just breaks down. And they start kissing. It's, it's incredibly realistic and it's incredibly emotionally heartfelt. So yeah, I'm I'm in love with this issue. Five out of five batarangs. Uh, once again, I thought this book was excellent, and from now on, I think I'm going to stop talking about the art unless it's something particularly brilliant, which stands out, because it's so consistently fantastic that I think it's going to get boring if I mention it every other podcast. Although I did think the scene in the beginning with both Chase and Batwoman was absolutely beautiful, and the energy in it was really like astounding, with the the, uh, the painted scene where she basically takes out Chase and escapes from all the bullets. I really like where this title is going, and I think all these side plots are balanced really well and really push the story forward. I just hope that they're part of a long-term ongoing narrative, because I think if they're all meant to be wrapped up by the end of this arc, they're going to end up being really rushed. So I hope that these are things which play out over the entire series and not just in this one arc. And I thought that I thought it was really odd where Kate suddenly decided to stop training Bet. And I'm not sure if it was some kind of preemptive tactic because she knew Chase would end up going after her, or if it was because she was worried about her as a sidekick and getting hurt by by this um weeping woman character or just any of any of that sort of thing. So I I thought it was a bit disjointed that part. And it really came out of the blue, and I thought it was quite uncomfortable. I didn't really understand it. I thought, and I also thought the lack of an editor's note when it seemed to be referencing past storylines uh, was a bit disappointing because I, f- I kind of felt for new readers there because I, I didn't know what it was she was talking about at first. I wasn't sure if this was something that would play out in the future or if it was something that had already happened. And when I realised it was something that already happened, I realised that people who are new to this wouldn't know what that was talking about and they maybe expect it to play out in the future and it never would. I also thought the the dialogue was pretty interesting with um the scene where she where Maggie's in the at the gig and she says, My date's late and the guy replies with leave her ticket at will call. Go in without her. <laughs> How did he know that she was a lesbian? Because if anything if anything, I think it would have been more interesting if for him, as anyone would, just to assume that she was waiting for a guy, because that would have led to some interesting dialogue. But yeah, I mean, I love the art, love the book, love the series, love the story, love the direction. I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. I like the tattoos that Kate has. I thought they were pretty fun. I really dug the page where she's trying to like wash off the trauma of the night while Betty's getting her Flamebird gear on. I love that we're finally seeing Flamebird. That's that's pretty cool. The relationship between Kate and Maggie continues to be one of the best parts of this book. I 
I, I mentioned this earlier. I just want to say it again. I think the fact that we're not getting scads of internal monologue, that we're just reading these women on their actions and words alone and facial expressions through the art and everything, I think that does help a lot in the storytelling of this, of this relationship. It is gratifying to see that Kate is able to find somebody she can turn to. She's a very proud woman, a very strong woman. She's almost died, and she's having a big emotional wreck over the whole thing. And she's able to find some comfort with, with Maggie, and I just, I, I, really, I really enjoyed that. The art, what can I say? Uh, when I sit down with an issue of Batwoman, I mentally prepare myself for like this visual feast that is going to take time to digest. There are some of these two-page spreads where I just sit and look at it and let my eyes pass over, you know, the, the arcs of story that zigzag across the page and, and look at all the details to piece it all together. It's it, in the way it all tells the story. I just, it's, it's really beautiful, beautiful stuff. And the dichotomy continues of the painted work for the costume life versus the traditional ink and colors for everyday life. And when we see that reversed in the final pages as Kate is out of costume, so she's being drawn in traditional style, but Flamebird is getting ready to go out, so she's the one who's being painted now. I just thought that was kind of effective. The argument between Bet and Kate was possibly the crux of the issue, at least the, the story that was being told in this particular chapter. Kate has a response to her trauma that I think sheds a lot of light on her personality. She almost died, so she immediately wishes to push away anyone else who she thinks might not have been able to make it through you know, the, the, the trauma, the event. And I think that Betty's slap, or Bet's slap, however you want to pronounce that, was certainly driven by justified emotions. Um, I've seen Lois slap Clark you know, for similar things. And I'm not in favor of expressing anger through violence or anything, but I do think that Betty's anger was justifiable and real in that part of the story. It'll even be bigger in retrospect if we find out that um, Kate didn't know what the heck she was talking about and that Betty does, actually does have something in her past that she's fighting for that just hasn't been revealed to the reader yet. Uh, all in all, I thought this was a solid book. Uh, this issue exemplifies all the reasons that I look forward to this series every month. I'm going to give it the full five out of five batterings. I think, you know, I may have been coasting on the previous issues, but this one really, really grabs me. The first few pages of the book are so amazing in the art, the layout, and the emotion. It was so powerful to see Kate stripped of everything, of her really her entire being and then transformed into her sister which is such a painful part of her past and then we see her coming out fighting but but certainly not unaffected and i feel like this is perhaps one of the reasons why we have this um encounter with bet in the end through this encounter though you know we also see more of the weeping woman than we have thus far we get to learn more about her the entrance of the deo investigator along with her shady boss, really makes me question what she knows. You know, does she see beyond the masks of the different people? And what is the overall goal here? The phone call between Maggie and Bette is fun. And then the emotion of the issue takes a completely different turn when Kate tells Bette that it's over for her and she needs to leave. Uh, you know, I, too, wonder what her true reasons are, but I really feel like it, it's, it's connected to her 
kind of her near-death experience. I feel like it really messed uh, messed with her. I can't really see um, Kate being vindictive, so I think it is some sort of misguided protection. But it, it wow, it was just so harsh, though. And and of course, it's not only going to make. Um, bet angry but now she's just going to rebel and you know we see that at the end and now you know she's definitely in danger with this deo woman and then this new bone villain looking to to press her for info but this development certainly keeps batwoman tied to batman which i think is nice because um I can't remember now what, what the words were, but like he specifically references Batman and like he knows these bat people, but he wants more information on Batwoman. I love the side-by-side panels of Kate literally washing the day away, like John had mentioned, while Bette puts on her flame bird garb, uh, both with completely different attitudes. This again draws into question the whole body paint issue. I still don't understand this. And because of this issue in particular, I actually went back and read every appearance of Batwoman in Detective Comics, um, that run that started at like 8.54 or something like that, uh, because I was just so excited about this character. And from, I don't know, it was like five issues, and all of a sudden she decides to start her training to become Batwoman. It was in a backflash. So she's training, she's training. Then she comes back, and she has this white white paint on so it was like it was very strange you know one page she's somewhere doing some physical training and gymnastics not ballet and then the next she she arrives and she's got you know the darkened eyes and all these things and the tats and stuff it was i i don't really understand but you know the tats stay on the skin and it stays on in the shower but it can be stripped away in in that whole interaction the, with um the white skin is new for the new 52. It's basically a take on redheads who do have very small pigment in their skin. And it was J.H. Williams kind of making a stylistic choice because I read that on his blog. Oh, okay. It just seems strange, though, because then it was stripped away when she was with the weeping woman in the water. Like, she lost that. Oh, um, I assume that I was think she was becoming somebody else. I think there was, like, some... some I Other thought that was her when she was younger and also a reference to her sister as well. Okay. Okay. Um, but, you know, finally this ending, oh my word. You know, I love the fact that Maggie goes to the apartment. You know, she's just not one to go home and cry about being stood up. And and you can just totally see how wrecked Kate is. And Maggie is there to comfort her. It was It was such a great scene. And, you know, it was romantic without being forced or inappropriate. And, and I feel like of all the relationships we have seen thus far, that this has probably been the most impactful. And, you know, it was not like, um, I don't know, it just, yeah, exactly. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't Catwoman, you know, it was, it was sweet. (laughs) It was really nice. It was wonderful. But, you know, it it was such a great issue that had me feeling for Kate the entire way. Uh, I give it 4.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so that is, Gives Batwoman number three a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Penguin Pain and Prejudice number two. Written by Greg Hurwitz, art by Seisman Kodransky. <laughs> so, Batman, you here for the cops? Or me? I was only here for the hostages. But now, I'm taking you down, too. 
The issue starts off right where we left off with the first issue with Batman demanding uh, information from Penguin, to which Penguin responds he doesn't really have any information to give him. Batman responds with, well, when you have information, you better give it to me or uh, bad things may happen. There's a number of flashbacks through the entire issue, uh, but immediately after uh, Batman leaves the Iceberg Lounge, there's a flashback shown of uh, little Oswald Cobblepot having uh, a, a little coop of birds and uh, one of his brothers shooting one of his favorite birds. Uh, then we have a nice comparison between Batman and Penguin about how Penguin actually perceives himself. And uh, then we f- find out that when he was younger, he was very, very keen on building things and impressing his mother. Uh, so much so that when he was a very small boy, he built a wind-up penguin that actually the chest opened up and some mechanical roses popped out. Uh, his mom always told him that he was very special. Uh, we then cut to the present day where Penguin is talking about how he's meeting up to discuss the uh, ruby necklace that was stolen. Um, as he's going through, he comes across some rooms that I guess he's uh, rented out. It seems as if they'd be rented out to... They'd be like rooms where I guess you would spend your time with a prostitute, but one of the rooms actually contains the Joker dressed in somewhat of a drag outfit with a what appears to be a goat tied upside down with feather. He's using a feather on the goat, but uh, that's kind of odd. But uh, he then comes to the room where the people who stole the necklace worked out, and the penguin says he's looking for a pair of necklaces or a pair of earrings to match it. We then cut back to a flashback where we find out that the penguin, wind-up penguin that uh, Oswald made for his mother, his father actually destroyed, and uh, we find out that uh, his mother and father have no problem having uh, intercourse while Oswald is listening. We then see that Oswald saves up his money and actually spends it on a uh, snow globe to give to his mother, and again she tells him he's very special. Then cut to present day where she, where he tells his mother that he has built her something. It's a giant penguin that is basically an assistant for her. We then cut back to the past where we find out that uh, his brothers tortured him all the time because of his love for the birds. And uh, we run through all of his brothers and how they died. And they were all unseemingly accidents that happened untimely. Uh, we then cut to... Uh, Another flashback of Penguin being tortured by schoolmates and as he was in a uh, outhouse, the outhouse being tipped over and his, him going home only for his father in the freezing cold snow-covered ground to be hosing them off outside. Uh, meanwhile, we find out that uh, everything is not as it seems as uh, there's a distinct reason of why his whole family has died accidentally. Back in present time, there is some pop singer or somebody who's famous, some celebrity, and uh, Penguin's gang ends up tearing the earrings right off her ears. Uh, Commissioner Gordon and Batman discuss this, but they're pretty sure that has all it all goes back to the Penguin. Penguin finds out that his mother has actually passed away, and uh, he has a flashback of how all of his family members have passed away in the past. And it turns out that he has some kind of... Uh, connection to every single person in his family dying by his own hand. And that is the end of Penguin Pain and Prejudice number two.
I thought this was a great issue. I thought uh, I love the art. I love the story. I think there's a lot of really weird, twisted crap in it, but uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, you got to yes the 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 idea of Penguin having this weird love for his mother that's not you know a mother a father or a, is not a mother son love. It's more of like a he has some kind of weird love that he feels for his mother as if he would feel for a person of his own age or something like that. Yes, it's kind of weird and definitely creepy. It's definitely weird and creepy that his parents have no problem having intercourse when he's around. Um, but when you take those weird, creepy things and think about Penguin as a character and thinking, wait, these weird events that have occurred in his life have actually molded him into the person and the villain that he is now, it, it makes sense. And, you know, even though this is probably one of the few stories that have actually delved into his current, um, his current psychology of why he is who he is and the justification of it, it it's definitely interesting. I, I'm enjoying this story as creepy and twisted as it is. I think that, everything's ha- that everything that's happening is giving me a whole new perspective on the Penguin and starting to make me actually contemplate other story possibilities with the Penguin something that I would have never even considered prior to this. This is great, and I don't have anything negative to say about it. On a somewhat related side note, my dread is that everything that's happening for the character of Penguin in this series could possibly be washed away by what Tony Daniel will end up doing in the coming months in Detective Comics with him featuring the Penguin, because I'm really afraid that he could he could take the penguin in a completely different direction than what's been happening in this, and that concerns me. But this specific issue, I loved it. Four and a half out of five batterings. My favorite part was uh, at the beginning when the penguin was <laughs> kind of kind of fixated on Batman as as a figure, and was like comparing his physique and everything. It was very very interesting, and I, I like I like seeing that villains are obsessed with Batman. Because that was actually a really big thing in the 90s that, like, when they did origin stories like these, that, like, at some point, the villain would, like, run into Batman, and then they couldn't, like, get their minds off of him just because he has that strong of a presence. And that was actually, like, it was nice to not only see that kind of idea brought back, but just sort of see it in this fashion. I think the Penguin was actually an adequate character, or I, mean, I should say an appropriate character to try that with. Um, I'm still not curious about the backstory just because, not that it's all that bad but again it's, it's like oh bad childhood equals villain like that's that's this cliche to me and i don't really mind i mean again it's not that badly told or that badly drawn it's just it doesn't connect with me um and the whole thing oh he killed his, his brothers and his father i'm not sure how he killed his father because it shows that he takes a, a bite of a sandwich and then the guy dies did he put rat poison in or something um maybe i wasn't paying as much attention I did kind of find it funny how Commissioner Gordon was written. Just that look on his face, which is clearly um, taken from a photo. And it just made me laugh. Like, he was talking about the guy from the last issue. And he says, um, well, the kid didn't say what happened to him, but we found a black and white. I found him staggering through the streets two blocks from the club. And guess who that club belongs to? That's right, Batman. It's the like, I don't know. It just sounded funny that Commissioner would talk like that. But yeah, this, this issue was okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't great. I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. I really enjoyed this issue, and 
I agree with Dustin about what he said about the last issue, that this could potentially become the Penguin story, much like the Killing Joke is the Joker story, and I want that. I want this to become that, because I do think it's a really great story, and I think the Penguin, because he's such a classic villain, and it's more because he's been around for a long time than he's had any great stories, so I think he does deserve one. And I'm, so far, this has been a really great story. Like I said before, I am a bit nervous that it's going to be dragged out too long. And I'm equally worried that Tony Daniel is going to ruin it all. Because I, I think even with Susan Kudransky doing this one shot to prequel Tony Daniel's run on the character, it's still written by Tony Daniel, and I think it will have very little to do with this miniseries. What I did find really interesting about this is how you never see um, the penguin's parents and you don't see his brothers either until he kills them and it's like these sort of, these ominous the people holding him back and then equally you never see Batman's face because it, you it's like these authoritative figures or these people who control him who make him feel small which um, they're holding him back like when he's looking at himself in the mirror he sees this fit man you know he's strong and got batman's physique and then when he's in the presence of batman he sees himself as this small boy how he was when he was younger and i think john was right in the last issue when i thought it was just an an odd bit of photoshop mistake but it's not it's the, the artist using these techniques to show what the penguin is seeing and we're seeing stuff through his eyes and i think it's really clever so i really love the art in this in this series and I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings I love that insight Joe into the faces that he's um, see or that we're not seeing in the art as being this authority figures that he is honestly not registering but like he he can't bring himself to like look at their faces or something I don't know whatever it is I, I, I like that um, I hadn't picked up on that this is this is such an amazingly dark and subtle exploration of, of, of one of the worst cases of small man syndrome I have ever seen. And, you know, brought on by, you know, first his physical deformity and then all the resulting abuse that he suffered growing up. His talent for impressing his mother is both amazing and creepy. Amazing because it shows the great mechanical skills that he has, which is sort of in in keeping with past things we've had with the, with the character. I mean, he started out as a guy with gimmick umbrellas. You know, you have to have some sort of mechanical talent for making gimmick umbrellas, right? So, so he does still have mechanical skills, but but very creepy because of all the Oedipal undertones, overtones, and all the way through the tones. He, yeah, it, it, he pretty much is in love with his mother. And it's strange. Um, his dad is a complete and utter douche that uh, should not have been allowed to have any influence on children anywhere whatsoever. Um, he should have just been cut off from the younger generation. I, I, I have no sympathy for that man whatsoever. And the fact that the story is able to make that character so hateable is, is a credit to the storytellers. Penguin's brothers definitely take after their father. And I'm not surprised at all that someone with the delicately balanced psychology that Oswald seems to have would have tipped over into extreme violence at a young age. I mean, 
I'm living proof that a bad childhood could turn you into a supervillain, so I don't see why it wouldn't work for him. Uh, as it is now, that was a joke. As it is now, he has faced so many leering grins and smirks over the years that he just wants to wipe this smile off every face in Gotham. And, and you know, that's, that's a pretty dark mindset there. The art in this book is beautiful, uh, both in the designs and in the panel choices with the cutting between the present and the past and, and seeing how the, uh, the things that, have hap- that are happening in his memories are influencing what's, hap- influing, influencing what's happening now. There were just a couple of places where it was a little bit hard to read, mainly in the opening confrontation with Batman. There were, just, there were some parts there that I, I had a hard time following. But it's, it's counterbalanced by so much goodness throughout the book. Really liked the scene of Penguin in front of the mirror, where he sees himself as being muscular and distinguished when he's really just not. As opposed to on the first page, when he's on his knees before Batman, he feels like a trampled child again. And, and that's what we see on the panel. You know, that's, that's just really good stuff. And oh my gods and goddesses, the page where he is sitting beside his mother's bed, shaking the globe over and over as we pull the camera back. Powerful, powerful stuff. And the fact that he takes such delight in killing all of his family, it just makes me shudder uh, rather, rather deliciously, actually. I'm going to, if I could give this six out of five batterings, I would, um, I, I, I was sucked in by this story, and I'm hoping that the fact that this artist here is going to be um, involved with the detective issues that have the Penguin in them, um, I'm hoping that means there's going to be some consistency, but who knows exactly how that's going to work out. My only, my only question about this book is why the hell was Joker in that one panel? That just that freaked me out when that happened. Okay. Um, wow, we've got like positive views, and then we go back to me. I feel like you know the origin side of the series is really taking over and detracting from the present time storyline, uh, and I really can't follow the present line as it keeps getting broken into by the past, and I don't really think there's much of a flow at all. Now, if we're meant to understand more about the Penguin, I, I feel like that indeed is accomplished. But there are still some scenes, however, that are unclear, and I can only assume the worst. You know, Donovan mentioned the whole hamburger in the bedroom with the rat poison. And uh, who knows what really happened. I wonder into what was Little Penguin thrown. Like, he comes out and he's like, waste. I I don't know what's on him. I I really would like to know, but maybe I wouldn't. I did like Penguin's narration regarding Batman. Um, The two are certainly opposites in many respects, and that goes for both identities. So I think it's nice to see that pulled in here. And it's kind of amusing everyone's touched on this. You know, to see Penguin envisioning Batman and his musculature and then looking at himself in the mirror... Some of the depths, or I'm sorry, some of the deaths of Penguin's brothers certainly have a Hitchcockian feel about them, and there really is no need to go into details with them. So I think the writer does a good job there. And, you know, speaking of Hitchcock, I do have to say that I felt for Penguin at the end, and the panels really further this, you know, as John had mentioned, uh, really pulling back the view and having him shaking the globe there. I'm still not really enjoying the series, though I would say that this one was probably better than the first. I just feel like the two different timelines don't fit well together, but of course now that 
really, I guess, were up to the present. Maybe not. But his mom is dead, so I don't know if there's going to be as much uh, of a focus in the past as there has been. But 2.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Alright, so out of 5 reviews, Penguin Pain and Prejudice number 2 gets an average of 4 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, The Huntress number 2. Huntress number two, Crossbow at the Crossroads. Writer Paul Levitz, penciler Marcus Toe, inker John Dell, and colorist Andrew Dollhouse. The issue opens with Huntress musing about the sanitation engineer's strike and the fact that the bad guys she had tied up at the end of the previous issue were killed before the policia arrested them. She thinks about all this as she breaks into police headquarters and looks for information on these bad guys. She finds out that the same undertaker picked up all the corpses and takes this to be more than just a coincidence. She has to make a quick exit when the policia take notice of a light on in the office. Elsewhere, Moretti takes the edge off his bad day with a young girl, then gets upset during a phone call, constantly trying to make the leather type out to be no big deal. As he ends the phone call, he promises to kill Huntress when next she appears and promises a great visit for the chairman. At the Undertaker's home slash place of business, the Undertaker is preparing Mr. Moretti's boys when Huntress comes in and threatens to shoot his cojones if he doesn't tell her all about his dead friends. The next day, Helena is in a restaurant with her two new reporter friends discussing Moretti. Helena wonders why it has not been taken down yet when she finds out that everything in Italy is connected and those connections need to be broken in order to get the job done. As Helena leaves the cafe, Alessandro tells her that a leather-clad masked woman has been rumored to be at a hotel. Rumors often have a hint of truth in them. That night, Huntress goes back to the shipyards, finding some girls in the holding tank of a ship, and goes to work. She is patient and waits for the girls to be led off the ship before taking out the guards, blowing up the ship, and hijacking a bus in order to drive the girls to safety. Later, Helena on a motorcycle at Moretti's place tails an unexpected vehicular entourage of Moretti. She sees him at the coast, loading a boat with supplies and girls. She may not have a shot now, but Helena will see Moretti soon as she shoots a tracking device onto the side of the boat. All right, the Huntress number three. I don't think a lot happened in this issue. Uh, We had some exchanges. We had Huntress saving some more women, but it just really seemed like a continuation of everything that's already happened in the last issue. That's not to say that I think it was bad, because I don't think it was bad. And I've come to the conclusion that if I was to pick one artist to draw females for the rest of my life, I would have to pick Marcus Toe, because I think he does an amazing job with drawing females and not over-accentuating things that don't need to be over-accentuated. So with that, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Danger has never looked this good. (laughs) I just found that kind of funny and retro. I actually agree a lot with Dustin. Um, I enjoy this issue, but I would be lying if I said that so much had happened. And it was a lot like the first issue. It was pretty simple. Hunters is fighting some bad dudes in Italy. Um, in fact, the guy, that she, this this main uh, bad guy, gangster guy, he's actually really nasty. But not to the point, I don't think he's being over the top. But he's also, you really hate him. With easy, oh, I'll, I'll, we'll give you a name when we turn you out, um, random 
girl we picked off the street and made into a hooker. Uh, that's 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 a nasty guy. But and you want to see Huntress just punch him in the stomach. Um, Marcus Toe is awesome as always, and you know I don't I don't know what it is with Huntress, but I think ever since they, I don't know whether it was post crisis or what, but she's always been able to like look especially attractive, even in a world where every woman is attractive essentially. And I'm not sure if it's, like, the purple <laughs> that she's always had or, like, the crossbows being, like, kind of, like, Melina Havelock theme to her or what. But it's something that, it's something to be said that she always, like, looks good no matter how if she's being depicted, like, overtly sexual or, or the costume she's wearing or the artist is drawing her. But it goes to show that Marcus Toe makes her look really realistic and making her look gorgeous and making her look, you know, capable. I enjoyed this story. It was it was simple. It wasn't all that deep, but it was fun. And I'm starting to like Huntress more and more as a character. Three and a half out of five better ranks. I'm exactly the same as Donovan. I was never that keen on Huntress as a character, but this is really making me like her. And this issue is just more of the same. It, it's very good, but I think the main purpose of this book is to establish the Huntress in the new DCU. And it's not telling necessarily an important story I think it's just trying to get across what she does how she does things and the way her mind works but she's it's making her an interesting character to me and I think she looks really great drawn by Marcus Toe so this is three and a half out of five batterings from me as well I definitely full on agree with the art this is um, whenever they sat down and said let's make the new D52 sexy this is the kind of sexy they should have been going for. I, I've, I've said in the past that I definitely don't mind, you know, some sexuality on the page. But, but if, they, if this were the baseline and there were occasional exceptions, I think that there'd be a lot more happy female readers out there. This miniseries, while I think that it's good that it's exploring the major tragedy in the world today, you know, the, the whole idea of human trafficking, I'm not feeling as invested in it as I would like to feel. There's nothing I can really point to to say I don't like that. It's just not really drawing me in. It's not the Huntress either. I, I like the Huntress. I just got done reading her Chuck Dixon Detective Comics trilogy where they kind of brought her back in as a more regular player. You know, I, I like the character there. I like the character here. It's just the story is not really doing a whole lot for me. The main reason I liked the first issue was the themes addressed in the story. But there wasn't enough story in this issue to really keep me connected. She foiled another shipment of women, and that's about it. Uh, Plot-wise, I kind of feel like we're in the exact same place where we were at the end of issue one. Like, they could just have cut this issue out, and nothing would be missing. I'm hoping for more in the remaining chapters, because this issue is definitely padding. But enjoyable padding, so I'm going to give it three out of five. Apparently, I was going to be the happy rainbow sunshine lover of the group. So, okay, not to beat a dead horse that has been beaten, but, you know, the art is wonderful. The, uh, this, whether the scene is dark or light, all elements are certainly clear. I also love the fact that 
uh, the art in so many ways really mimics what is being said, you know, like the undertaker crossing his legs when Huntress threatens his manhood. Or when the pastry cake in the cafe illustrates what needs to happen in order to end Moretti's crimes. But, you know, that could have been directed to him, but I just thought it was, it was good. I love how the issue connects to the end of the previous issue, but starts off with our main character. I like to see Helena using her smarts and finding information on her own because what else can she do when... Oracle is not in existence right now. There are fun touches throughout, like Helena eating a policeman's flagliatelle, and you know, thinking that it's it's such a poor substitute um, in Gotham for for the ones in Italy. I thought that Levitz did a great job really getting readers to dislike Moretti with everything the man says or does. I mean, you know, that first scene really cinched it for me. Just, uh, oh, don't like him. You know, found Moretti's conversation on the phone, however, to be a little confusing. I liked how Levitz was creative in, in only showing one side of the conversation, but I thought it was a little difficult to follow. But I get that it was probably just um, to keep us in the dark for now as to whom he is talking to. I like Helena's new friends, the reporters, and I almost wish we could just have the Huntress ongoing and really develop these characters, because I think that would be great. Something I found interesting was the one page where Helena's narration was in all caps. I don't know if you guys noticed this. This was during her stakeout of the ship. And, you know, this could have either been a mistake or intended to really show her thoughts and, I guess, kind of screaming in her head, which, if the last is true, then it was certainly a nice touch. Um, speaking of narration, you know, in contrast to the narration found in Detective Comics uh, number two and Batwing number two that we reviewed last episode, you know, this narration is not repetitious and every word really seems pertinent. We learn more about Helena and the story with each box. I like to see Helena... You know, having fun with her crime fighting without going overboard. She makes witty comments and thinks on her feet, and she's also caring. In this case, it's, it's really getting to her. I guess the last point is that I just thought it was fun to see Huntress driving a yellow cheese, a.k.a. a bus. I, with a huge explosion behind her. But, you know, I, unlike the other gentlemen, um, I thought that, you know, this story wasn't just filler. You know, I think it's continuing on a great path, and, and I'm really glad that the issues are being used efficiently and not wasting pages. I thought that the story was indeed continued in this, and I would give it four out of five batterings. All right, so out of five reviews, The Huntress number two gets an average of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Birds of Prey number three. Any ideas? Just one. Hit it. Good evening, all you gentlemen, mobsters, creeps, and crooks. Men in tights come after you And still you're off the hook For those who scare and terrorize It's the dawn of a brand new day You skunk and assembly call us The one and only birds of prey Birds of prey number three You might think Written by Dwayne Swierzynski Illustrated by Jesus Saez Continuing from where we left, last left the Boyds, Starling and Katana are less than thrilled to see Poison Ivy attempt to join the team. After a typically annoying superhero squabble, Ivy uses her plans to try and get that diabolical fiend, Donovan Morgan Grant, to give up some information. Grant closes his eyes and starts to spout meaningless rhymes before exploding all over the area. 
Ivy saves the women, and they allow her to join the team. While Ivy heads back to the woods to recover from the blast, the birds return to the safe house and find scraps of paper that indicate who the next targets will be. At the Gotham train station, all four ladies meet up and attempt to find the targets separately. Katana's husband ghost sword (laughs) alerts her of an enemy in camouflage, while Ivy hypnotizes the conductor before getting jumped by a bunch of invisible enemies. Canary then gets a telepathic message from an unknown source that claims to have triggered a bomb in her brain and tells her to call off the birds or she'll blow up. Dinah does, but the guy says he'll kill her anyway. To be continued. Alright, Birds of Prey number three. The art for this was was really good in my opinion. I love what they're doing with Poison Ivy. I said this last issue, so it's gonna sound like I'm doing the same same review for this for this for a different issue. But I like what they're doing with Poison Ivy. I like that, you know, for the most part, it's more of it's more than you know. I'm going to be this person who has vines that pop out of the floor and grab people, and that's all I do because that's all she ever seemed to do in Gotham City Sirens when she was in that series. And that was one of my concerns when they said that she was going to be in this series as actually part of the team. It was well, how are they going to do that since her only interpretation over the past couple of years has been. I have vines that I control that can pop out of the ground. And that, to me, is just stupid. She, there's so many other capabilities with the character, and this is, this is proof of that. So because of that, I thought this was interesting. Not only did she use her chemicals and her spores that she can create to figure out the information from um, the slipstream character, I guess, but uh, also you, she used the ability of creating plants to actually shield... Katana, Black Canary, and Starling from being, you know, really damaged and hurt by the explosion that happened. And I thought that was kind of cool. It is interesting because we know the information of, well, okay, the character is going to be playing two sides later on based off of what we heard in the comic news earlier. So that that is kind of piques my interest of, okay, so how exactly is this going to play out? But needless to say, I thought this was a great issue. Uh, I have no complaints about it that that I can remember off the top of my head. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. What I like best about this uh, issue was Poison Ivy. And what I like best about Poison Ivy is her design. It's kind of funny because I think some someone, um, either if this wasn't uh, finished ahead of schedule, someone may have listened to the last podcast where we commented on the, the uh, originality but overall futility of Ivy having autumn-colored leaves as a costume because they're green now. But, but that's, that's neither here nor there. What I really like is the fact that her pupils are green and her irises... Or her pupils are almost white and her irises are green and like her whole eye is black. That's a lot more of a subtle difference, even though she has like stuff on her face. That's a lot more of a subtle indication of her metahuman abilities than full-on green skin. And I really like that. I really think that's... That that's just really cool. It makes her creepy, and while at the same time in tune with the earth and the plants. I also really like how just how she's written because again, it's more back to like this is. I really do like Poison Ivy as a character because I like how messed up she can be through seemingly in enti- her 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 seduction technique is typically like like um I mean she'll kiss a guy and hypnotize him or whatever, but it almost seems like she was almost like telekinetic in a way because when she started talking to this guy she was like shh take me home I need you can't you see that take me home 
I love you more than anything's ever loved anyone. Take okay, I'll stop. But like, it was really, it was it was no, kind no, of please, cool. Please keep going. She was just like almost alien, and I like how kind of it was kind of creepy, but it wasn't like you know she was like brah or whatever. And I, I really enjoyed her in this comic. I'm, I look forward to seeing more of her. Although I do kind of question why she's just so eager to join with Black Canary. But also, at the same time, she, she doesn't necessarily consider herself as a villain, so I guess it's all right. This issue kind of read fast for me, but I was enjoying what I was reading. And again, I'm loving the characterization of uh, Black Canary, and I like the predicament she's in now, where she's like, oh snap, this guy's going to blow my head off. She kind of looks like Charlie's Theron in some of these panels, but I, I, I enjoyed this issue, and I'm still digging this title a lot. Four out of five better ranks. This is actually fast becoming my favorite series of the Bat Books. And I'm not really sure why. I'm just really enjoying the stories in it. I don't know. I did find the beginning, however, horrifically awkward. Just because it was really stupid. Just how it was like... <laughs> yeah. Starling goes up to Poison Ivy and says, You're a killer! When Katana spent the last issue chopping people up left, right and centre. And then to back herself up, she pulls a gun on her. It doesn't make any sense. But... The rest of the book, I think, made up for that a hundred times over. Like I said, it's quickly becoming my favourite book. I love Poison Ivy on the team. Really intrigued, looking forward to the next issue. And it's just doing exactly what it said it would have been, like a special ops kind of book. And I've never really read Birds of Prey before. I'm not sure how faithful this is or if it's not, but I don't care because I'm really enjoying this. Five out of five batterings. I haven't really read a whole lot of Poison Ivy stories before this. I recently read Batman Green Arrow, The Poison Tomorrow, and and I've seen a couple of her first episodes on Batman, the animated series, but that's pretty much it. I don't know. I almost felt like that she's more interesting as a human woman with some, like, tragic element, like she, you know, has toxins flowing through her blood or whatever, uh, than, than as a walking plant tissue generator. But at the same time you know, more powers means you can be more badass, so I don't know. That being said, I, I did find her opening scene very entertaining. She She's used to good effect throughout this book. Uh, I thought that was a nice Liana she used to slap Katana to reference the Doctor Who episode. Overall, this series is, to me, just fun comics. I don't feel like they're pushing any envelopes or doing anything unusual as part of the new 52 other than not having Babs on the team, which, of course, is going to change soon. And, you know, they're including a villain that, that's been done in a lot of teams over, over the years. So I don't, I don't know that it's really carving out any continuity frontiers. It's not really treating any unusual themes or story ideas, but at the same time, I'm really enjoying it. And, and I look forward to both the solicit information, the cover art every month, and then the comic book itself when it comes down the pike. I do wish that we could get past this big crisis of the people blowing up so we could spend some more time exploring Katana or Starling. But those sorts of stories may be coming down the road. I don't know. We just don't know. Does, does Starling have a power? No, she just is. She's like, she's like Batman. She's got training. That's it. Okay. That, that's kind of what I gathered. I just didn't know if I was, I was missing something that was being subtly done, and I just... She's just Not, badass. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's you know that that that, that works. Certainly, I can understand why uh, the writer the writer <laughs> that'd be strange. 
Certainly, I can understand why the writer wouldn't lead, <laughs> lead with uh, that sort of a story exploring like an individual of the team as the series launch arc. But yeah, I'm definitely enjoying the book, and I, I want to see more. And I'm really looking forward to seeing Batgirl on the Birds of Prey again for the first time next month. Four out of five batterings. I really liked the opening scene because I, I just thought it was really realistic. You know, I, I like that some of the team members don't really agree with this decision to have Ivy on the team and bring up her nature. And then, you know, on the other side, we have Dinah, and she's trying to justify her decision. However, I do agree with, with Sir Joe that it doesn't really make sense to bring up the fact that Ivy is a killer and be so against that when there was a lot of killing going on in the other issue, and, and I was wondering why Dinah was okay with that. I, I especially like the page where Ivy is trying to convince the others that she is not a killer, and then you have the different news clippings attesting to the opposite of that. I just thought that was clever. <laughs> I liked... I liked Ivy's audition uh, because it really showcases her powers as well as the methods and, and strengths slash weaknesses of Starling and Katana. I was a little confused with the scene involving Ivy and Donovan um, because I couldn't tell what <laughs> – it makes me giggle uh, – because I couldn't tell whether you know it was all happening in his head or if it was actually happening in the warehouse. But then you know later she – No, it was just, real. It was real. I felt it. Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, because later she does the same thing with the subway engineer, and that was in his mind. So I thought maybe it was in the mind. I don't know. Anyways – I thought the explosion. You would think that Donovan would be able to shed some light on it. <laughs> he said he felt it. Well, I was okay. dead, so I don't think I can talk too much. So, okay. Um, the explosion I thought was a great plot point because it really forced the team together, and, and you know how great that one thing can do that. I like that the birds can do more than just kick butt. You know, they investigate and think too, and I love those scenes. It seems like they're finally working as a team on the subway train. They all have a particular task to do and are working for the same thing. The interactions between them seem easy and fun. Starling saying happy doping to Canary. I had to think about that for a few seconds and then I understood what she meant. But we still you know, see the reservations that Starling has for Ivy's participation. Starling continues to be the drama queen, I think, on this team because she's just overly dramatic in everything she does, dropping uh, that liquid on the woman and then talking it up uh, with with the guy next to her. And, of course, it's always the old woman, right? Because the guy was uh, camouflaged as the old woman. But I like how all the issues really connected in the scene with Dinah, and we continue to learn more about these people. Who are they? More than just Reapers from Brian Q. Miller's series. It's a solid issue that continues to be fun and really sees the team continue to grow and grow together. Four out of five batarangs. All right, so out of five reviews, Birds of Prey, number three, gets a average of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Catwoman number three. All my life, I felt powerless. I've never stood up for myself. But then... You can come out now, it's okay. I think maybe I'm in the wrong... Everything changed. Catwoman number three is entitled No One Can Find Any Piece of Me Here. 
Judd Winnick is the writer. Gillum March is the artist who also did the cover. We open years ago in Selena's early thieving days before she became Catwoman. She impresses Lola McIntyre with her recent cash, but Lola cautions her to be careful in her career choice. An apropos warning as Lola now lies dead on the floor of her own apartment with a bullet in her skull. And Catwoman is tied and taped to a chair surrounded by thugs, including Bone, the boss who likes pinstripe suits, but could really use some moisturizer on his face. Just a bit. Bone goes into the story of his childhood, how he grew up in a home and was often picked on, and all of his things were getting stolen by the bigger boys. So when he got older and got some folding green, he started accumulating nice things. So it really gets his goat that Catwoman is stealing all his nice crap. And he hates it when she gets his goat because he likes his goat. And he likes his nice crap. Drugs or money would have been business, but his pretty shinies are precious to him. This whole time, Catwoman has been sitting silently, tears streaming down her face as she stares at the body of her dead friend. She's not like like sobbing, sad, pitiful girl. She's like really angry, trying my best to figure out how to kill you. Tears. Bone leaves and instructs his boys to rough her up until she's no longer rough upable. So they knock her chair back, which loosens her legs enough to give her leverage to pull and snap the wood of the chair legs. From there, it's Catwoman's kickassery until two of the men are on the floor with bullets for kneecaps, and the third is spilling his guts rather than risk getting his family jewels shot off. He tells Catwoman where Bone has most likely gone. The Moffat Building, which is both a strip club and a nice nod to the current showrunner and chief writer of Doctor Who. He's not the only bone getting pleased in that place, but he is the one that Catwoman goes after when she crashes through the skylight. She puts a gun in his face and directs him out onto the roof, where she proceeds to beat him with a baseball bat. See, she knows all about what it's like be in a home, and she thinks that Bone's obsessions with meaningless stupid things is one of the most despicable reasons he could have had for killing her friend. And now she's going to take him out, but Batwoman shows Batwoman. Ha! That would have been a whole different scene if it went off the same way. Batman shows up before she can issue the final blow that kills Bone. She argues with Batman, who's trying to stop her from killing him, but he does calm her down enough that she gives him a kiss and then pushes Bone off the roof. Of course, Batman goes to save him, which gives Catwoman the chance to run away. Back at Lola's apartment, she is destroying all of her books and, uh, like, you know, financial keeping books and anything else that will show a connection between Lola and Selina when, dun-dun-dun, the cops walk in. She's destroying evidence in a fire with a dead body next to her. This doesn't look good. Next, all kinds of trouble. Catwoman number three. This was an interesting issue, other, really, for no other reason, but it kind of gives us a little bit of an insight of the back history of Catwoman, um, where we learned that she was stealing stuff well before she was Catwoman, and as we know from prior to the New 52, really year one set it up as she 
decided she didn't want to be a prostitute anymore and started stealing stuff dressed as a cat to, you know, make the ends meet. That's how it started. So clearly, very different origin than what we're used to prior to the New 52. With that being said, I find it interesting that uh, for some reason, last issue, Catwoman had could just basically was beaten and beaten and beaten when that bone character was in the room, but he leaves the room this issue, and somehow she's able to take out all, I think, three of the henchmen that Bone leaves behind. It seems like she really wasn't trying last time, and she really needed a motivation, such as someone being killed to be the motivation for her to actually do something worthwhile. That's all I'm saying about that. The the fact of Batman, you know, interrupting what's going on with Catwoman, Catwoman saying, well, I've got to... I've got to do this no matter what because of what he did to Lola and I don't really care the consequences that comes with Batman you know the fact that Batman says I'm never going to be able to forgive you and then she does it anyway after she tries kissing him to distract him it just makes me feel like okay so you set up the first two issues <laughs> of the series of they're all about wanting to have this this fling that they've got going on the next issue, he's telling her not to do something because it will be it will be something that will not be forgivable, and she does it anyway, despite the fact that she likes having this fling with him. So the question is, is the fling going to continue to happen? Which means someone's principles are going to be sacrificed here. Is Batman going to continue to do what he's doing with Catwoman, even though he said he's never going to forgive her, so he'll have no problem having sex with somebody who's who has no problem killing people it there, there's a line that i see uh, that feels like it's been erased and then drawn again and then erased and it just to me it doesn't make a lot of sense of how this is going to continue to work out because if they're not going to continue to be together then what was the point of having the relationship take place over the end of the first issue and the beginning of the second issue if it was Anything but for shock value. So, um, yeah. Uh, Catwoman being caught by the cops, not surprised. Anybody could have saw that from the beginning of her going back to the apartment. Um, I'm going to say two and a half out of five batterings. Uh, I actually like this issue. Uh-huh. Yay! It was, it's just like... I, I still think Joe Wynn is kind of like, like having at it, whatever, but... The difference between this issue and the last two issues is that I think the last two issues were built upon TMZ level Channel E style sensationalism, and this one was actually again you know sort of more character driven, character driven, or at least we get it's, it's more emotionally driven. This is something that should happen when, when people die. You should you should you should feel that loss, whether it's you know somebody that you know for a long time like Lola or like Lola was to Selena. Or to somebody that you know you you see in an issue and they die or whatever, there, there should be a sense of of removal. Um, it, this slight change, but it always bothered me. Like even like on on Smallville, I remember when the first person that that Clark can't watch watch die, Tom Welling's just like, oh, that's a shame. Oh well, I'll continue with my day. It's 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 so unbelievable. And people die all the time in comic books. That is commonplace. But it's good to see an entire issue focus on the emotional, mental, and psychological ramifications of seeing somebody just kill like that. And that should, if Lola and Catwoman were supposed to be that close, that should, this is exactly what should happen. 
Also, I'm starting to think why I like Gillian March as an artist so well. And a lot of this story, a lot of this reason I like this story is because it's very, very cinematic. And it's almost, it's actually, a lot of it reminds me of uh, manga. And it reminds me of like, like old school manga from like the, like the 80s. Not, not any of this, this new stuff now, but like, there's a lot of like really, really wide eyes. I really like the, the dead look that Selena has on her face. And like this, the, the tears running down her like emotionless—well, not emotionless, but you know, just static face. Um, there were a lot of really expression-filled uh, faces on this in this comic. Um, I really like his Batman. His Batman's big and large, and just the storytelling of it—it just, just feels very, very Eastern to me. And I think, and I think that's a good thing. I think that Selena's portrayal is like that of like a teenager, to be honest. Like, I can understand these emotions. But this is almost a different character. Now, I like how I like her reaction and everything. I'm just saying, like, it's just different. It's not if they say, "Oh, this is a, this is a classic Selena Kyle." That's not the, that's not the case. But I do like how this Selena Kyle has reacted with like the whole scene of her burning everything. Every panel that shows her face is gorgeous, and the scene where she you know she says, "I'm so so sorry, Alola." That's really sad and heartbreaking. The only thing I would say against this is that I think that Batman is being so played still being written as a chump whenever he's near Catwoman. But I think that for what this story was going for, it succeeded. Um, four out of five battle ranks. Yeah, once again, I, I actually really enjoyed this issue. Bone didn't come across as the stupid, the stupid villain I was expecting him to be. I would have liked more explanation as to his appearance, but he did remind me a bit of the outsider from that Flashpoint time book, so I might just reread his origin and pretend it's the same character. I was disturbed by the baseball bat scene, not because of the violence, but because that is not an attractive woman being drawn there, and it looked more like Jim Lee's Joker. I did, however, like the interpretation of Batman. I'm not normally a fan of how Guillaume March draws Batman, but in here I thought it worked a lot better, and the way he was written as well, I thought, worked quite well. The only thing I didn't like was Selina using the guns. I didn't mind when she was using it in Lola's home, because that was more self-defense. But when she used them to break into the club, I thought that was a bit out of character using them there. But I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. This is exactly the kind of story I expect from a Catwoman book. A femme fatale criminal who is going up against other criminals and, you know, kicking them upside down and sideways. Because um, to me, this, 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 is, this is Catwoman. Uh, I do love the themes that are explored in this issue, the, the value of life over the value of things. Criminals are constantly killing people in stories for what amounts to really frivolous reasons, which is why bad guys are bad in our comicses. I'm um, probably stating the obvious on that one, but that's okay. But getting revenge for the taking of a life, that is a deeper emotion that I'm happy to see being explored in Selena's psyche in this story. I love that she took the baseball bat to the guy who killed her friend, and I love that Batman is a force in her life that, that brings her back from the line. His presence there was just a little bit convenient, as Selena says in the story, but I still like how it played out. 
Someone with a, a more discerning eye than mine may disagree, but I didn't see like a single provocative pose other than the one page in the strip club. Uh, that this, especially not from from Catwoman, but but maybe I maybe I missed something. The emotional weight of the storyline was conveyed very nicely, both the scripting and through the facial expressions on Selena with, you know, the death of, of her friend and how she's coping with that. The scene where she's curled up in a ball on the floor and just sobbing. I mean, anyone who's ever lost a loved one knows what that is. And, and overall, this is just, it's an enjoyable series that I've been enjoying from the beginning but like with almost every other book we've talked about tonight, I think that this issue was the best we've had so far. Four and a half out of five. Ooh, yeah. Okay, so I am not going to break the current streak, certainly. I would never do that. It, it was a great move, I think, to have that touching scene at the beginning with Lola and then flashing forward because I think it makes the impact of Selena sitting right in front of dead Lola all the more powerful. I agree with Joe. I thought Bone was well-written. He, he's definitely a cross between a psycho and a businessman, which is interesting to say the least. I thought that Selena's actions were much more in tune with the character that I am used to. Those panels where she's just wide-eyed, staring at her friend, are painful, but I'm glad to see that she finally fights back. That was probably like the triumphal da-da-da-da, like the music started when she finally started punching people and you know then Catwoman seems more violent than I have seen her but I I guess it seems fitting due to the circumstances and then Batman appears you know shipper and the interaction between the two actually seem more in line uh, with their characters than the first two issues Catwoman while she may you know enjoy the kiss is using it as a distraction to do what she really wants to do which is you know get away and it's not over the top and it seems more like we have seen before I did find it curious what Selena said about not knowing each other's identities because her mask is off so that was kind of interesting how can you really I don't know I, I, I really feel for Selena at the end but I feel like too much time and dialogue was spent inside of her apartment and it could have been better used elsewhere I feel like there are better stories to go with than Catwoman being accused of murder or on the run from the lamb or on the lamb, right? Run from the law or on the lamb. Uh, you know, when is she not on the run from the law? I still have a problem with seeing uh, scenes in strip clubs, especially when it just seems like a way to be as gratuitous as possible. I mean, there was a mirror on the floor, people. This issue is the best that we have seen thus far, not to be redundant. I actually thought it had a point, which is a first for this series, and we actually get to see a decent characterization of Selena and Batman, for that matter. Three out of five Batarangs. All right, and over on the website, the News Digger gave the issue three out of five Batarangs, so it's going to give the Catwoman number three an average of... Three and a half out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Nightwing number three. I heard you've been looking for help. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing anyone can do. The past cannot be repaired. The future cannot be altered, no matter how wrong it seems. So, it's impossible. Good. If memory serves, we've done the impossible before. Nightwing number three, written by Kyle Higgins, with art by Eddie Barrows and Eduardo Pancisca. 
Ah, yes, two pencillers, not to mention two colourists and three inkers. But I've digressed. The issue opens five years in the past, where it's implied both that Rhea has always had feelings for Dick, and that Mr Haley was very fond of him as well. We then, however, jump straight into the present at Mr Haley's funeral. Dick is, of course, in attendance, but he's harassed by Haley's son. Later that day, Dick and Rhea are discussing Mr Haley's murder. She tells him about Zane, who was one of the children from the circus when they were younger, and his involvement with contract killer, killers, as well as setting up an excuse for the two of them to have, as John would say it, sex your damn later. Dick goes to visit Zane as Nightwing when he confronts him about what he has become, but Zane triggers some form of energy which affects Dick in a fashion similar to that of fear toxin. Realising what's causing these hallucinations, however, Dick uses his suit's comm transmitter to invert the signals. After defeating Zane, who calls himself Feedback, Nightwing realises that he has no useful information. We then cut to Dick meeting Aurea for aforementioned sexy time. We then cut to Haley's son, and we realise that it was he who hired Psycho. To be continued. Alright, Nightwing number three. Interesting take um, on this issue. I don't think that I would say I, that this issue is any better than the last two issues. I think there are I think this is probably on the same level, if not just a tad bit. I, w I don't even want to say the word worse, because it's not worse, but it's not as good as the last two issues. I think the idea of, you know, there's a person from the circus who is now booking a booking agent for contract killers is very coincidental. I also find it very odd how, for some reason, Zane, this, you know, booking agent for contract killers, is... Wait, let me let me let me figure out exactly say this. Nightwing goes to see Zane. Nightwing and Zane are having a conversation like they both belong to a circus, but neither one of but only one of them actually knows the identity of the other one. So that's where I think there was a little bit of a disconnect for me because I was reading it and thinking to myself, this guy doesn't know that Dick Grayson is Nightwing, so why is he talking to him like he knows who this person is? And it just seemed very odd to me. I think with all of the, and this is going to probably be uh, seem like it's a little nitpicky, but it seemed to me as if there was this big deal about them going to Chicago or them going to a various various different cities when with the circus and it being travel or and it traveling. And the problem is that okay, so issue three was supposed to be Chicago, but you could not actually tell it was a it was Chicago other than the fact that they said it was Chicago. There, I mean, you would think that with all of this focus on the fact that they're going to all these various locations, they do they would show something to make you think, oh yeah, that actually is Chicago. Or maybe just show the skyline or something. They're in Atlantic City, they're in Chicago, they're in Gotham City. Uh, next issue, they're supposed to be in Miami, they've been in Philadelphia. There's, I mean, it just seems to me like if they're going to be going to these other cities, you would think the, uh, that they would try to figure out a way to actually incorporate the skyline or something that's known in the city into the actual comic. But I, I guess, that, that, like I said, that might just be a nitpick thing for me. I think it was it was okay, but again, this this feels like it's the, the in-between of Act 2 and Act 3, with Act 3 being Issue 4, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it, this didn't feel like anything was really happening other than setting up for things to happen in the future. 
And that's the, the one problem that I... A lot of people have been comparing some of the stuff that Kyle Higgins has done to Scott Snyder. Not to say that Higgins is on the same level as Snyder, but where they do these longer storylines that lead up to something bigger. But the thing is that I've determined is that Scott Snyder, even if even though the issues lead up to some major thing at the end of the story, each issue is self-contained where something is still happening, something of interest is still occurring to keep you interested in just that specific issue. With Nightwing, I'm not seeing that, and yes, it is hard to judge because this is only the third issue, but this is the third issue, and I don't really have anything that's happened in this issue where it's, oh wow, uh, I'm really interested in, in what happened in this issue alone, because I'm not. So with that, I'm only going to give it three out of five batterings. To be honest, I'm, I'm a lot with Dustin on this one, almost exactly so. This title is starting to lose it for me. I think Kyle Higgins can write Dick Grayson very well, but it may be just because of the whole circus thing, because I'm getting... I'm getting really sick of seeing this, this the Haley Circus. I mean, first of all, this whole this whole the the, the beginning scene is like you know with the whole uh, Pop Haley funeral and everything. We've seen something like this exactly before, and I'm not going to like harp on it too much because it is you know the the New Fifty Two and all that. But to the point where like we've literally seen Dick Grayson at the funeral for Pop Haley with all the circus folk around, and like seeing different panels like it's almost shot for shot. And the fact that it's that that um, identical kind of makes me like like I'm reading something else, and like it's almost like a waste of time for me. And it doesn't really add too much besides the fact that hey, he was in the circus, and that people don't like Dick Grayson for no good reason. Similarly, Raya is a character that I've been fed up with as well. Um, this whole the, the whole scene where she's like, "Oh, Dick, you're awful because you want to stay ahead of people that are in your past, and you don't." Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make any sense. This kid was had his parents killed by a gangster, was adopted by a billionaire, and then had to stay in Gotham while the traveling circus who went across the country didn't stay in the city. What? Why is she mad at him? And, like, it just, it just tries to provide character development for this useless thing who's basically just be there to, just so she can be screwed by Nightwing, essentially. Like, I, I really don't like – I really don't like how forced that was. Um, I did find it interesting that in Dick's or Nightwing's flashbacks, we see uh, him in his Robin costume because we saw it in Red Hood that the Robin costume was sort of updated along with the rest of the costumes in the DC universe. And I think that's actually interesting. And I actually like, I like the fact that there's green, black, yellow, and red in it. Um, I like the original Robin costume because I'm a traditionalist, but that was a nice costume. Um, on the other hand, I was really bothered that to see that the Flying Graysons were essentially wearing Nightwing's first costume because john grayson looks like he's literally nightwing except with like a blue emblem instead of a, a, a yellow one and the fact that it was so similar kind of just drove me nuts because that kind of just makes dick an idiot for choosing that as, an, as a superhero identity because it's so identical it's, it's practically the same thing it's, there's not there's very little variation except for like maybe one color mod on a, on a part um i agree with dustin that the same way like the whole part with um zane was kind of awkward and you notice that, like, Dick says, oh, I can reverse the frequency, but he doesn't do anything. It just happens. Um, I don't know. And, and, and again, like, we, we go back to the scene at the end where Dick's like, you're right. On the night that uh, this guy who we don't care about died, I went to the funeral, but I was too scared. It was, it's, ah, it's forced. It's forced. 
I wish this. I really wish this were better, and I hope that the circus thing doesn't drag on more. Two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, I'm. I'm exactly the same. I think the excitement, my excitement for this series, has definitely worn off, and I just wasn't as entertained by this issue as I have been by the rest of them. Uh, the art was inconsistent, but that was understandable considering we had so many different artists on it. And I find that the plot of this book is just. This happens, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, with very loose connections in between, and very little narrative. And uh, this kind of goes back to what Don was saying about the last book. I'm not, I mean, I don't, th- I'm not sure if these characters are established, you know, like the Zane and Raymond. I've, I got the impression that they weren't, and that they were just new characters. So why the hell are we expected to feel anything for them when we hear that they're dead, or that this guy is now feedback who we just never heard of before I didn't care and I don't know why we're supposed to it just, I'm not sure if he, that was a power or if that was just he had something on a device on him that emitted energy it was merely an odd quirk that some random person had and uh, there seems to be quite a few times in these new 52 bat books that the main character has these sort of inv- the violent interrogations which achieve absolutely nothing. It happened in this, happened in uh, Detective, happened in The Dark Knight. And I don't know what's going on. It's really boring to see it over and over again when it, it achieves nothing. It's just seeing Batman or Nightwing do something cool where they beat someone up, but it doesn't serve the purpose. It doesn't serve the story. And whilst I find it a bit odd storytelling point to see Dick constantly hooking up with Rhea at least it's not graphic and over the top I just find it a bit weird I think Higgins might just want Dick to be happy and have a love interest the editors <coughs> oh maybe that too I, I kind of feel like I should be liking this book but the story just doesn't really interest me and it doesn't seem that important so I'm only going to give this two and a half out of five batterings I don't think it actually ties in with Batman any more than that first issue. I think it was just a coincidence now, really. I'm kind of getting a similar vibe. I was wondering the whole time. I was like, now how did we actually resolve that Nightwing is not the killer that we're looking for in Batman? Because that was a really cool little, you know, dual cliffhanger that first month, and now it just seems to not matter anymore. The stories have gone their different directions. Um, I'm finding a lot of little beats and, and story points that I like in this issue. But but like others have said, the overall story that's being told through this arc, I, I'm having a trouble staying engaged with. I I definitely like this issue more than last issue. Last issue had a lot of running in the corridors um, that I didn't really care for, just back and forth for no reason. I did like that we actually have on the page, you know, backstory to Dick Grayson five years ago, still being part of the circus. So that means that you know. When the five years ago time period is, you know, D- Dick has not become, become Robin yet. Maybe he's just about to, and, but he hasn't done it yet. The funeral scene, I, I do hate when people go crazy and violent at funerals. I, I love when it happens in stories, but, but you know, just in general, I, I'm glad that I've never been at a funeral where someone decides to, to just, you know, go crazy the pilot episode of twin peaks and the first pet cemetery film are 
are great examples of insane funerals if, if you like that sort of thing. I actually kind of dug the psychic attack and seeing all this stuff in, Dick, in, in Dick's head. I do agree that it was a bit out of nowhere, and I wasn't sure why all of a sudden we have this secondary bad guy attacking Dick Grayson with, with powers or with a machine or with whatever it was. But I did like, you know, the, the, the sort of stuff that he was wrestling with. I'm glad that Don mentioned the thing with his parents being in Nightwing costumes because I wasn't sure if that was new or if that was original to this story. It, it does make even less sense with the condensed timeline because if, if he were becoming Nightwing like five or eight years later after being Robin... That's one thing, but now we have him becoming Nightwing a year or two after the Flying Graysons were killed. And so that that's just not quite as as sensible a choice for him to make. I like that Dick and Raya are hooking up. I mean, if I had if I were a superhero and I had a girlfriend, I'd be, I'd be going to her house. I, I did like that, you know, he, he apologized and redressed the wrongs that she accused him of. And she responds by, you know, getting frisky. And that, that was fun for me. But then, you know, you know I me, mean? I like it the sexy time, as uh, Joe was kind enough to reference earlier. I, I am curious about the next issue box. We had Dick's and Babs's first sort of reunion in a while, it seems, in Batgirl number three. And she said she wanted to work her mission alone. And he's like, okay, you're all alone. Goodbye. And he, you know, goes away with her hair in his hands. Um, so what's going to happen to bring her into Dick's life in the next issue of this book? And hopefully the writers have coordinated, and even if it's not specifically referenced, hopefully the emotional beats at least make sense in the context of what we got this month. So I'm going to give this overall a three and a half out of five batterings. Ooh, boy. Okay. Um, to start off with this backflash, I really have mixed feelings about it especially since we don't really know what to focus on, and so obviously focus on Raya and Dick rather than Zane, which is probably what we should have been focusing on, uh, since that's the, the point of the whole issue practically. I also wonder about its placement. You know, had it been later after Raya actually mentioned Zane, I think that it would have been more comprehensible. I thought the funeral was well done to a certain extent with all, you know, the conflicting emotions going around. But then the entrance of this Zane guy certainly seems random and convenient or contrived. Either one of those C words you can pick. You know, must it all be connected to the circus? Is it really believable that Raya would know of Zane's killing career? Who knows? Well, I guess if she really is keeping in touch, then it makes sense. Uh, this conversation after the funeral also seems to be attempting to make the relationship between Dick and Raya have depth since we have some conflict here. So, you know, conflict and then we'll have a resolution. I'll be happy, happy, happy day. But if she was so mad at him in the first place, why even sleep with him? You know what I'm saying? I don't like Nightwing going to Chicago. Yes, he has his own plane, but he was pretty adamant about sticking to his roots and taking care of his section of Gotham, and now he's traveling. I, I just don't think it feels right. The scenes where Nightwing faces all of his doubts are great, though I admit I would not have chosen all of those ones in particular. Um, I agree that it seems very random all of a sudden. 
he gets attacked. Uh, I do like that Nightwing uses his head to fight back, and again, the plot thickens. So then we see that apparently we are supposed to be really invested in this relationship between Dick and Raya because of the emotional testimony that he gives to her. <gasps> I mean, how easy is she in changing her feelings? Well, that was a bad phrase, how Pretty easy damn. is she? But yeah, oh, she changes... She changes her feelings so, oh, I don't know. It's like a romance novel where you, like, it's really happy. They have a past, and then something bad happens, but then they're reunited at the end. It's very strong. The end is intriguing and makes me think that the whole funeral outburst was perhaps an act from the drunken fellow. But, it, you know, it's no longer clear as to why the baddie wants to kill Dick. Is it because Dick is a heinous killer, as he had said in the first two issues, or is it because he is now affiliated with the circus? It's very inconclusive. I don't know really what's going on. I thought that this issue was a little better than the last in certain respects. I mean, especially with the relationship. At least it wasn't a random hookup. But, you know, it still has some, some distance to go. And I almost wish I knew who Dick was without Haley's circus attached. Uh, I'm going to keep with the 3.5 out of 5 batterings. All right. And over on the website, the Newsdigger gave the issue 4 out of 5 batterings. So it's going to give the issue a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last issue, Batman number 3, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pulo. Oh, my head. Oh, everything's fuzzy. You wanted me. Here I am. I didn't want you. I don't even know who you are. Where's Dent? I don't know who Dent is. I think you broke my balloon tying hand. You're garbage. Who kills for money? No, I'm Wiggles. Garbage is a different clown that works the east end of... God, no! Where's Dent? I don't know. I was hired by Leo Bonner for his son's birthday. I do close-up magic. I have one rule. I am so sorry I broke your rule, giant bat. The issue starts off with a kind of a flashback of Alan Wayne, kind of uh, what appears to be he's, he's going nuts. He's running around Gotham City in the winter in nothing more than what appears to be a white, I guess a pair of pajamas, a nightgown that was very common back when he would, uh, back in the 1920s. Uh, he runs across a police officer who then says to them, uh, who realizes who he is, and then he says that uh, they're, they're trying to get him, they're trying to get him, and next thing you know, he falls into a manhole. We cut to the present time where Batman is beating up the Ukrainian gang, trying to get information of how the owl assassin got to Wayne Tower, as there are five gangs, and this is the fifth of the five gangs, and uh, Batman has dealt with all of these gangs trying to figure out who came in contact with the assassin. Um, after learning that nobody actually knows anything, he goes back to the Batcave to do a bunch of analyses, uh, or analyses on the footage that they have of Bruce fighting this owl assassin and uh, a bunch of interesting little things back and forth between Alfred and Bruce about uh, owls. Nothing really to spark anything specifically. Uh, we then cut to the daytime where Bruce has decided to go visit Lincoln March and talk about uh, the possibility of who and why somebody dressed as an owl would have attacked them. 
Um, Lincoln March just kind of rattles on for a while about how there's that old folk song slash nursery rhyme for people from Gotham City about the owls and beware of the talon. And uh, from there, Bruce leaves and says that he's going to have his own people watch him because they're the best. And then Lincoln March says, uh, but if they're watching me, who's watching you? Then cut to Batman, who's gliding around the skies of Gotham City, trying to figure out exactly where the owls are hidden. Well, as it turns out, he figures out that they're hidden on the 13 floors, which, which, to everyone's knowledge, don't really exist because of superstition. So uh, what ends up happening is he finds the hideouts of the Owls, the Court of Owls, and uh, as time progresses, it turns out there was a fund established in Alan Wayne's name that be built, that, that the fund be, the fund was a trust to assist young architects to add to Gotham skyline. About every decade, there's a new building that's made based off of that, that fund, Batman starts going through to all of these uh, locations and it turns out that uh, the, every building that was built in honor of this fund and this trust has their 13th floor is the hideout for the Court of Owls. The last building, which is the most current one, has a picture of someone dressed as the owl and a number of people wearing owl masks over their faces in June 2006. And then suddenly, an explosion happens, and the entire top of the building blows up, and we see that the owl assassin, along with his own pet owl, is watching on. Alright, so, Batman number three. Very interesting story. I've got to say, the combination of not only all of the gadgets that Batman uses, but all of the technology that he uses as well is really interesting, and, you know, I've not seen that a lot in a lot of other books, and I like to see that in this book, or any book in general. I love to see Batman using the technology, using his brain to solve things, instead of, like we've talked about, interrogating thugs to the point where it's just a brute force interrogation and not... You know, who who's smarter, who's the actual detective. Anybody can beat somebody up and get information out of them, but using their brains and actually using detective skills is a whole different story. Which in this, clearly Batman's using his detective skills with finding out about the 13th floor hideouts of all the, uh, the hideouts of the Court of Owls. Definitely interesting. The only thing that's kind of odd is the very end, we had that last building that he goes into where he finds the most current version of the Court of Owl hideout, and when the explosion happens, the explosion happens what appears to be on the top half of the building. Now, I don't know how many floors that building is. You can look at the image and try to figure out how many floors it is, but it just seems odd that if Batman's on the 13th floor and the top of the building's blowing up, it just seems that unless there's only 14 or 15 floors, what is the point of blowing uh, of the top half of the building blowing up? But again, <laughs> that's probably a nitpick. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll figure this out sometime. Because I'm sure Batman didn't actually explode. But <laughs> the uh, you know I, I like the inclusion of Lincoln March because it gives kind of like a different different identity to have Bruce Wayne around. You know, he's, he's got this person who is going to possibly be a prominent member of Gotham City's, you know, up. He's, po- he's going to be, he's already a, a person who's 
of importance to Gotham City, but he could be even more of importance to Gotham City. And I think having a tie with Bruce Wayne uh, with Lincoln March could end up being a good thing if Lincoln March does end up becoming a mayor. Overall, I thought this was a good issue. I thought the art was great. Uh, I think it was a little bit better than the last couple issues because it seemed like there was a little bit more... There was a little more of a fluid smoothness, if that makes any sense, um, as far as the art goes. It wasn't as gritty as the first issue and wasn't as, as, in my opinion, as seemingly rushed as the second issue. I thought this was spot on. So I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. This was an interesting issue. What I like about it is that it doesn't have to be a detective comics issue for Batman to be a detective. And I like that... They are really using... I, I think one of the arguments for making Barbara Batgirl again was to make Batman a, de- a detective, which shouldn't have anything to do with it. But anyway, I mean, they actually are utilizing that aspect of him. Because yeah, I really think he should be shown as a, de- a detective as much as possible. If he is the world's greatest detective, he should never be out of practice. And I like that. My favorite bit about the, the book was at the end when he was just kind of like, you know, doing his research. And... The sto- the layouts of the panels, you would start seeing this um this like owl eye, and it was very it was all very quiet whenever he was in empty rooms and researching and seeing what was left there, and then the pictures of the of the owl people, that's probably not the right phrase, but like that's what I'll call it. It was all very very spooky. I thought I thought it was actually really effective and very very creepy without just you know being like brah ha ha. And it almost looked like Batman was being spied upon. I mean, he was. We saw at the end. But when I was reading it, before I knew what was going on, I kind of, I kind of got the sense that he was being spied upon just out of, just out of fear for Batman and more than anything. And that's pretty effective storytelling. It was a little bit more of a quieter story. I don't want to say not too much happened, but it was less, less happened than usual for a Scott Snyder story. Just enough happened to where it was, it was awesome. <laughs> But um, I was left definitely uh, intrigued by this whole core of owls, and I enjoyed the issue. Four out of five better ranks. Uh, yeah, finally, a Batman issue that doesn't open with some meta narration, and I think it's so much better for it. On the other hand, I'm once again not enjoying Capullo's art, not for stylistic reasons, but I don't appreciate his storytelling skills. In particular, I don't think his layouts are very good because he rarely uses panel borders. And I find that it gets really confusing, especially on pages with a lot of black because all the panels bleed into each other. And I'm never really sure what I'm looking at. What I really don't enjoy, in contrast to Donna, uh, in contrast to Dustin, is I do not like Snyder's Batman's over-reliance on tech. Because I think Batman is supposed to be the master detective, and when he uses things like lie detection in his lenses, however that works, I think it really takes away from that element of him. And I almost feel that Batman should—I almost feel like Batman should have seen that tripwire at the end and things like that. That's more easy to pass off as inexperience if this is supposed to be a younger Batman. But I'm still not necessarily happy about it. And whilst I don't want my Batman to be sort of unbeatable, because then that takes away from the humanity of him, which, again, is what I think the tech does, I still think that the balance is wrong here, and I don't like the way that he's... the way he's using all of this technology. I think he should be able to use his own skills a lot more. Like in the first issue, where he smelt out the the linseed oil. 
the issue that, however, really picked up for me when Batman was going around uncovering all of these secret hideouts in the 13th floors, I like, as Don, as Don said, the um, looking at the building through the owl eye, and I, I did like the, the layouts there, and I thought that it, the story really picked up there, and I was really interested. But I would take Snyder's Black Mirror storyline over this one any day, but I'm still going to give it four out of five batterings because I am enjoying it. I just, it's not exactly my cup of tea, as British as that sounds. <laughs> I like tea. I also like this issue. The flashback with Alan Wayne was cool. I, I was trying to think when I was reading it of how many generations back that might be when I realized that I'm a bit of an age with Batman. I don't really have to offset my thoughts by five or ten years like I might have when I was younger, we're kind of roughly the same age, which is a little depressing since I'm significantly larger than he is. But that's why I read comics, to escape from reality. So um, my grandfather served in World War II, which means he was probably born in the early 20s when this scene takes place, or maybe the late teens. This guy here is old in 1922, so let's say he's old enough to be a grandfather. That would make Alan Wayne Bruce's grandfather's grandfather, which is what they say later in the book, but I figured it out first, and that made me happy when I found out I was right. I really dug the logic that followed for how Batman determined this Whisper Gang in the opening scene, or, or the second scene, rather, might be involved with the Court of Owls. Good detective thinking there. I thought this whole issue was, was, was a detective work issue uh, batman finding answers and finding reasons for why things are going on sort of uh took a break from a lot of the suspense and danger and yet at the same time i felt like there was this like lurking just off panel uh the threat of the court of owls because we're, we're definitely getting this feeling that they are pervasive that they are permeating throughout gotham's uh uh history and, and environment and so they're there and you don't know where they are but but we're just going to you know, put the act, the direct threat on hold for this issue. I, I liked it. I don't know how I feel about the lie detector and his optics after hearing both Dustin and Joe talk about it. It's got to be handy. But there is something that's gratifying whenever Batman can just be a judge of character and say, he's lying, and um, you know, go on about his day or his interrogation or, or his beating up of the bad guys, whatever. They bring up the folk song in this issue which was introduced last issue, but I, didn't, I wasn't here two episodes ago. I had a thought on that, though, that I wanted to share. And while I think the idea is very cool that there has been this folk song or, or children's rhyme in existence in Gotham all this time that has its roots in reality, and that that reality is a present evil, I think that's a very neat idea. The song itself is way too complex and contrived to actually be believable as such. But that's just a minor point coming from the, uh, the amateur linguist in me. The, uh, the issue continues to add delightfully to the mystery of the Court of Owls. Um, there weren't a whole lot of character moments here in this issue, but like I said, it was a big detective work issue. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to say this issue was a nice, solid four and a half out of five batterings. I've been very, very uh, pleased with the books that we read this, for this episode. 
the first scene starts off, you know, with Batman in some sort of strange place, and it makes me think that, uh, once again, I'm missing something because it does not directly come off of the previous issue. We just have Batman interrogating someone and then getting into a fight with the gang, so it didn't really start off as a strong issue for me. I do at least... Um, like the true beginning with Alan Wayne because while it seems random in the beginning, it all comes together in the end. I like Bruce using Alfred and his history to try to solve the puzzle of the owls. That was great um, synergism there. And I also like that Lincoln and Bruce have somewhat of a connection. Overall, though, I felt like this issue dragged and was more cumbersome in the information that it relayed. The best part was really the end of the issue with Batman finding the nests of the owls and then realizing that they are all living in people's homes. And now I'm scared to turn off the light. You know, it's dark, it's sinister, it's disturbing, and I think it was just a great turn for the story. I especially like the art layout of the story as as my man, D. Uh, had said before, uh, just you know, yeah, what up? Just the allies showing the full image of the building in which Batman is searching. You know, it's still a good issue, but I, I just don't think it has as great a quality as those that have come before. Three point five out of five batterings. All right, and so over on the website, the News Digger gave the issue four out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman number three. A total of four out of five batterings. All right, so that is all of our comic views. Let's throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm covering a story called Night Quest The Search. Now, this covers issues of Justice League Task Force, issues 5 and 6, the Shadow of the Bat series, issues 21, 22, and 23, and the Legends of the Dark Knight series, 59, 60, and 61. Again, like some of the other Nightfall stories I've been covering, it's kind of a crossover between several series. So we've got several creators involved in the story, and it was published around 1993-1994. So the writers involved are Dennis O'Neill and Alan Grant, who have been involved in quite a few of the Nightfall stories so far. And the art's by Sal Voluto, Brett Blevins and Ron Wagner. So where we left off, uh, Bruce and Alfred had just set off on the trail for Jack Drake, Tim Drake's father, and Dr. Chandra Kinsolving, who had both been kidnapped mysteriously. So this is the second half of the Night Quest story, so following Bruce rather than the events in Gotham. So let's see where Bruce and Alfred have got to. Sir, are you certain you're up to this? Chandra and Tim's father have been abducted, I'd be dead now if the kidnappers hadn't been in such a hurry to leave. stuck in this jam. There's work to be done. So Bruce and Alfred arrive in the Caribbean island of Santa Prisca, and Bruce is in a wheelchair after the events of Nightfall. And they're ambushed by a group of thugs. Bronze Tiger arrives to rescue them, and Bruce plants a tracking device on one of the thugs. At Bruce's hotel in Santa Prisca, he also meets with a Justice League member called Gypsy. 
Bruce briefs them on Dr. Chandrick solving a Jack Drake's kidnapping and asks them to track the tracer. Gypsy infiltrates the, the baddies' lair and spots the hostages. The leader has run out of patience and decides to send his men over to Bruce's hotel with a rocket launcher and they destroy the building. Tiger and Gypsy arrive devastated to find the rubble and know that Wayne must be under it, but of course Bruce anticipated the attack and has moved on with Alfred. The others think that Wayne is dead, but decide to continue their mission, and with the help of Green Arrow, they raid the baddies' hideout and try to save the two hostages. Dr. Kinsolving does have the chance to escape, but decides to stay and look after her patient Jack Drake as they are transported away. The heroes did manage to stop a drug gang, but failed to save the hostages, and Bruce Wayne reunites with the others and thanks them for their efforts, but knows he must continue his search. Next, we see Bruce and Alfred have travelled to London and track down the British hero known only as The Hood. Bruce straps himself to a support and puts on the Batsuit, giving the impression that he is standing up. He attracts the attention of The Hood and offers him a job collecting some info for him. We see Chandra and Jack Drake held in an old manor house by a shadowy group led by a man named Benedict Asp and they're torturing Jack Drake to make Chandra perform an experiment for him. It turns out Chandra has a secret past with Asp, where she had a healing power that he was able to psychically amplify, and with it they can heal major injuries, but Asp may be using the power for evil. After receiving some info from The Hood about Asp, Bruce and Alfred decide to go to Asp's charity ball. Bruce arrives disguised as Sir Hemingford Grey for the party and tries to infiltrate the building. Chandra is being used in the basement to demonstrate her ability to the shifty people behind this plot. And Asp, during the demonstration, shows them how he plans on reversing the power so he can hurt people rather than heal them. And during the demonstration, he focuses on the local nearby village and kills everyone there. Bruce and the Hood decide to attack the manor and Asp to try and uh, save Chandra, but they are too late as Chandra is taken away in a helicopter. However, Jack Drake has been left at the manor without his medical equipment. At first, Bruce thinks he's dead, but there is a faint pulse. Bruce calls for an ambulance immediately and then swears to find the woman he loves, Dr. Chandra Kinsolving. Bruce is back in London again and is told by a physiotherapist he must return to Gotham for surgery immediately or face being paralysed for life. He refuses and continues his search for Chandra. We also learn that Jack Drake is safe and sound now and back in Gotham City. Chandra, meanwhile, is still being tortured to cooperate but is refusing, and Bruce decides to investigate her past to try and find out where she may be. Uh, we learn that Chandra was an orphan and was um, put in a family with Asp, and one day the two children discovered their healing power connection and eventually they turned it on their um, abusing father. Chandra ran away and vowed never to use that power again, but Asp of course has tracked her down and is trying to get that power flowing again. Asp decides to focus this um, incredible power he has to kill people psychically on Bruce's alias, Hemingford Grey, the person he was disguised at at the party. Um, Bruce does escape this target as a ridiculous reason, the fact that he's not really Hemingford Grey, and then returns to Gotham. The doctor tells him that he must stay in the hospital, but after hearing of a threat from Asp to kill world leaders with this new power, he decides he must do something. However, Alfred won't stand for this, and tells him he must stay in hospital or Alfred will resign. Bruce can't stand by, so Alfred leaves. He returns to Wayne Manor for the last time, and meets with Jean-Paul, telling him to watch over Bruce, and then Alfred leaves.
looks like for good. Bruce gets kidnapped by ass men, um, and Jean-Paul tries to save him, but Bruce gets taken away. Bruce wakes up and is interrogated by Ash, who, thanks to his psychic link with Chandra, he learns of his identity of Bruce Wayne and even Batman. Just as he can, plans on killing Bruce with a lethal injection, Chandra attacks him and Bruce stabs him with the lethal dose. Chandra then touches him and manages to kill Asp. Then Bruce and Chandra spend the night together and Bruce says he felt something flow into him that night. Some mysterious healing powers, perhaps. Chandra is in a permanent delicate mental state and seems to have been sent back to the mind of her childhood. Bruce buys an estate and plenty of nurse care for her and also seems to be walking more comfortably again. And that's where the story closes. You've kidnapped us and shuttled us halfway across the world. The only thing I'll ever do for you is to testify against you at your trial. Dr. Dean Salving has spirit, Mr. Ash. Chandra never really developed a love of her abilities as I did. She channeled them into conventional medicine. We're fortunate one of her patients is here with her, for Mr. Drake will change her mind. Yuri? You brute! He's sick! You can't do this! Chandra Bang Monkley Hall not only made me lord of the manor, it provided us with this soundproof vault, an ideal location for the demonstration Colonel Vega and I are planning. Okay, so in review, firstly I thought Bruce looked very odd in a wheelchair, and he had all his gadgets in there as well, a bit like uh, Professor X from the X-Men almost. The two Justice League characters that turned up in Santa Prisca, Bronze Tiger was a little camp, and uh, Gypsy was the other one, who just vanishes, that is her power. They were pretty lame, I have to say, wasn't very interested in them. There was an interesting moment when Alfred says it must be hard for Bruce to leave others to do a mission for him, but Bruce says the self-pity is not something he's good at. There was a confusing plot point during this uh, Justice League story where Bruce was actually trying to give the impression that he wasn't Bruce Wayne. What he did was put on some makeup to make it look like he was someone pretending to be Bruce Wayne ridiculously complicated, um, confusing, and, I, and very unnecessary. I didn't understand why he couldn't just say, I am Bruce Wayne. Instead, he had to have some sort of disguise. I like the times when Bruce watched uh, the British hero, The Hood, in action, and, exp and it expressed how much he missed being Batman and being active. And it's made very clear here that Bruce is also deeply in love with Dr. Kinsolving, and it is... It is his only focus at the moment, not returning as Batman, but saving Dr. Kinsolving, who he seems to have fallen in love with. There was one moment when, when the village was completely destroyed and killed by this psychic weapon, Alfred very conveniently just went for a walk and missed the whole event. And Alfred decided not to tell Bruce about Jean-Paul. Um, again, Alfred protecting Bruce, thinks there's too much on his mind, he doesn't need to worry him about the mess that Jean-Paul is making with the Batman persona. Um, the art was was okay in, in these issues, but then in the Legends of the Dark Knight series, um, when they were in London, I thought Ron Wagner did a very good job. His stood out, and his, his style worked really well. I really liked Ron Wagner, an artist I'm not very familiar with. As we got to learn a bit more about Dr. Kinselving's past, um, we learned that she was beaten as a child. It was very dark and quite an intense story. But it was very engaging, and I thought it added a lot to Chandra's character, who was lacking a bit at the time. So I, I really began to like her a bit more. It was a bit obvious that Bruce was going to get healed. Um, he just happens to be involved in a mystical healing adventure just when he needs it uh, because of his back. That was a little bit convenient, and I think it's obvious that this is how Bruce will, will get his ability to walk back. Uh, there was a very lame get-out clause for... Um, Bruce was in the car, 
he was targeted by this psychic weapon and he felt something. And then he said that if Heming, it felt almost as if Hemingford Gray had existed, he would have died. That's what Bruce said. Um, really didn't make any sense, and it was very anticlimactic and a bit, a bit pointless, really. I didn't like it at all. It was a shame. Um, there was a good moment when Alfred decided to leave. Very intense, dramatic. Surely Alfred's not gone for good. Um, he also went to meet with Jean-Paul afterwards, and that was quite an awkward moment. So I'm very interested in those developments with Alfred. And at the end, I wasn't really sure why Chandra Kinsolving went a bit crazy and has gone a little bit mad in the head. And there's no real explanation for Bruce being able to walk again. Um, I, there better be some answers coming up soon. Hopefully there'll be answers in Night's End, the next chapter in this story. But it does feel a bit like this chapter has been closed, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do not address it again. I'll be disappointed if that is the case. But all in all, um, it was quite a fun adventure, but it had... Big ups and downs, some really good moments, and then some really rubbish anticlimactic moments, which um, were very disappointing. So all in all, though, it's three and a half batarangs out of five. Bruce, you shouldn't have followed us. You're quite a detective, Mr. Wayne, is it? Or would you prefer Sir Hemingford Grey? The beating Yuri gave you at Monkley was meant to silence you forever. At least this left you barely able to walk. I can still take you down, as Not necessarily. This piece of headgear I'm wearing gives me the edge. And, as you evidently mean rather a lot to Chandra here, what we're about to do to you has a certain piquancy. No! Don't touch me! Lay a finger on her and... Ah, but a finger is all it takes to augment my psychic power with Chandra's healing ability. With this helmet to reverse the polarity, I focus the combined result on you and... The power flows out of you and you can't stop it. Maybe I can't stop it, but I can refocus it. What? And direct my thoughts at you. No, you, you'll cause a feedback loop. It'll damage us both. Shut the door. So the Night Quest series is now over, and before we move into Night's End, it's about time that we spend some time with Tim Drake. In the aftermath of being kicked out of the Batcave, Robin is now flying solo. That's the title of the next book, Robin Flying Solo, which covers Robin issues one through five. So how is Tim coping without a partner? And, and this is, of course, the start of Robin's own weekly comic series. So um, a big moment for Tim Drake. And then once I've covered that, it's time to return to the Nightfall saga with the conclusion of the story in Night's End, where Jean-Paul will be confronted. So, Robin, next time, Night's End after that. I've been Nick, and I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. It happened shortly after you arrived at Gotham International, Mr. White. We just left the plane. My legs just buckled. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, it doesn't look good. A broken back is dangerous enough, but you've done nothing to help it heal. I'm ordering you to stay in bed here at Gotham General until we can work out a treatment plan. I shall see that he does, Doctor. But Alfred... Do that. I'll be back shortly. You know I can't stay in bed, Alfred. Asp is here with Chandra, and I can fight. Oh... Bruce, I have never questioned you before or been disloyal, but I will not be part of your self-destruction, anything but that. If you do not obey the doctor's orders, I shall resign my post, effective immediately. Alfred, I have got to find Chandra, whatever the cost. In that case, sir, I shall return to Wayne Manor and clear my rooms. Good day, Mr. Wayne. 
Alright, so that was Bad Books for Beginners. Make sure you're picking up the next set of books for the next episode. Let's get into our DCU Spotlight. And uh, let's start off with Don's suggestion for the past two weeks. Um, actually, this week I will suggest Wonder Woman. Cute! <laughs> I was going to do that one too. Others were going to suggest Wonder Woman. Um, it's, it's funny because I read the first issue and I thought it was alright, but I didn't understand too much of it. And I've not actually read the second issue, but I read the third issue out of out of pure just you know just give it a chance, and I, and I liked it. Which shows, even if you don't know what's going on, it's an enjoyable issue, and you should spend your money on it and buy it. Why? Because well, not only the fact that Wonder Woman is really a good character, she really she really deserves her iconic status. But I like how the um, Amazon mythology is getting getting treated. It's written very smartly. Um, we have some revelations about Diana's origins, which are pretty heavy. I'm not going to spoil what it is. <laughs> I feel bad now that others want to recommend this, but it's good stuff, and I like Diana's characterization. It's especially near the end, the last thing she says. It's very awesome. The art is by Cliff Chang. It's very nice. I actually met him uh, in San Diego Comic Con. He's a cool guy, and it fits perfectly with this type of title. It's very. It's not retro, but it's very appropriate for like the whole Greek aspect of it, and um, seeing as how I just stole. Most of the others uh, title pick a Wonder Woman because we all like it. I will be promoting this week or this podcast Justice League number three by You Know Who and You Know Who. I wasn't that keen on the first issue. Second one was a little bit better, but I always felt that Jeff Johns was trying too hard and trying to be too funny. But I do think that this issue, much like many of the DC titles, has really picked up in the third issue. And I think it's this story is really now starting to move along, whereas it was a bit slow. We've now introduced all of the characters and of the Justice League, obviously. And uh, yeah, the story is really moving forward. We've, we've seen our first glimpse of Darkseid in the New Fifty Two. Spoilers. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. And I think even after this, I think. They're really pushing to try and make this the flagship title of the DC Universe, so if you're not picking this up, I think it's one you probably should be. I think you owe it to DC. <laughs> I uh, came prepared with a backup title to, uh, to suggest, so I'm going to recommend to all and sundry that you read Green Lantern Corps. I was not following the Green Lantern books through the 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 never-ending saga of Rebirth, Sinestro, Core Blackest, Brightest, Night, Day, War of the pre-Flashpoint saga they had. I, I came on all the Green Lantern books new after Flashpoint, basically like with everything else. Um, Green Lantern Corps is taking Jon Stewart and Guy Gardner and putting them with a bunch of other alien lanterns up against a group of people who were... Um, basically slaying as many lanterns as they can slay. And um, there is some grimness. There is uh, a bunch of action. The latest issue is a big slugfest between a bunch of lanterns and a bunch of bad guys. And and yet there's also a really good story going on there, too. Very much enjoying it. It's uh, of, the, of the four lanterns, in my opinion, it's the one that owes the least to what has been going on in the lantern books pre-Flashpoint. It's just good outer space, you know, fun, and I heartily recommend it. 
I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. Um, you know, just to follow up some things from, from Don, since, yeah, I did pick Wonder Woman, but I have another pick. I feel like for the first time, Wonder Woman really is a relatable person, a relatable hero. I mean, everything's sort of thrown into question as to who she is and where she belongs. And, you know, the Amazons are really upset at her. Um, I just think, wow, she's like more down to earth than she has been. And as a, as a teacher of AP Virgil, man, you're really seeing the wrath of Hera in this one. And, um, I, I just I just think that's great. Uh, so as my backup, I'm going to recommend Flash, and it's by uh, Francis Manipool and Brian Buccioletto, and art by Francis Manipool. And I like the D-Man. Um, he, I met Francis Manipool at San Diego Comic Con, and he's a he's a great guy too. And um, all I have to say, I mean, if you have seen this art, like, the art is, like, 75% of the reason why I love this book. But it's also great because it's really exploring a lot of uh, Barry's powers. Like, it's really, he's getting to know these powers for the first time, almost, even though he's been in Flash for a long time. But this issue really opens it up, and this doctor told him, like, you need to actually use your mind to unlock the speed force. And so now he's just, like, really thinking about all these things and can... Um, think through all sorts of situations before they all happen and it's great to see a couple of scenes where he actually does that and the way that Francis Manipole goes about showing when he's actually thinking about a scene and really analyzing all these aspects, things that may be like really close to him or really far away he'll like uh, soften the palate of the thing that's like right in front of him. So at one point he's talking to Patty and she's just really softened and so is the background. And then they have all of these um, images of, of things that are going around. It's just it's just so wonderful. Uh, so I do actually, I recommend that. The, the Manuel thing that's going on, still a little confusing. Hopefully it'll get better in issue three, but just getting to know Barry and and seeing him really work with his powers, I think that that's a treat to be sure. Alright, and for my suggestion, I will be suggesting Suicide Squad. Adam Glass is the writer on the series. He's doing a really interesting job. Let me put it this way. If you enjoyed Secret Six when Gail Simone was doing it, then Suicide Squad probably will fill that void that you have ever since the New 52 started and Secret Six is no longer around. But, if you read Secret Six and thought, wow, this could be really good if it didn't have all the innuendo and the unnecessary, um, well, unnecessary everything that <laughs> Gail Simone insisted on having in that series, then Suicide Squad's the book for you, because I thought the idea of Secret Six was really cool. I liked the idea of a bunch of villains teaming up together. So I've been reading Suicide Squad since it first came out, which was only three issues ago, but every issue is interesting in the fact that something important is happening in the book. Um, when I say important, I mean in, important to the actual series. There's It started off with in a specific number of characters, and at this point, there's only about four characters remaining from the original squad that uh, have not been killed or... Uh, or, well, killed by each other or killed by by the opposing party that they're going up against. In, interestingly enough, Harley Quinn is also part of this series. Um, I won't spoil anything, but issue number three sees her hooking up with somebody besides the Joker, which I didn't see coming I heard about that. At all. I was, I was actually um, going to ask you about that. 
but I guess we can't get into much into it. So uh, kudos to them for throwing us a loop with that. Also, issue three, which it's not really a spoiler, but it does happen in the end of the issue, introduces a new member of the new, a new member to the team, and it's none other than Captain Boomerang, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. You know, for somebody like myself who has stuck to the Batman universe for so long and only knows bits and pieces about some of the villains that have that aren't really focused on in the Batman universe, this is kind of interesting because it does give us a no. It does focus on a lot of these villains that. In some regards, a lot of them are B-list villains. If in, in some cases, some of them are Z-list in the fact that they've never even shown up and they're just there so they can get killed. But uh, it's an interesting read, and I, I strongly suggest Suicide Squad, so pick that up. All right, so that is our DCU Spotlight. Let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, which will be much shorter than this podcast, I assure you, because we will not have nearly as many titles to cover. Um, Next time we'll be covering Batman Odyssey number 2, and we'll also be covering Batman the Dark Knight number 3. So not a whole lot of issues, so we will definitely, most likely, have a discussion, despite the fact that there's only two issues. So unless there is an enormous amount of news that comes in over the next two weeks, there is a probably 95% chance we'll actually have a discussion on the next podcast. So, with that being said... That's everything for this episode. You can always head over to the website, thebatmanuniverse.net, for all your comic news and then every other news that's related to Batman. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can check out all of our other podcasts and you can join the forums. Just be sure to leave us, or send us, shoot us an email and let us know that uh, you need your account activated. And, of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated as well. So, that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Joe. This is John. This is Stella. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>
And I love that Batwoman is is a force in her life to bring her back from going over the line. His presence. Did I fucking say Batwoman again? You did indeed. Well, you know what? They're both there in spirit. I'm sure that that, that Kate's actually present as well. We just can't see her on the page. Um, okay, because you know this one you're editing. So, I'm sorry, uh, I'm editing this one. Just yeah. okay. If you can try and cut out the what. <laughs> I'm just gonna do this again.